The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. 
The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. 
The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. 
The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. 
The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. 
The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting. The Mental Health and Disability Services Interim will commence at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, December 19, 2011. If you are hearing this message, your audio settings are correctly configured to listen to the meeting.
Good morning. Good morning, everyone. We're going to get everybody to the table. Give you about a two-minute warning, and we'll get started. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Oh, welcome to the uh, last interim committee of the uh, Joint House Senate um, Mental Health Redesign System. Um, we have some opening comments, but before we do that, I'd like to um, ask if a committee member would like to uh, make a motion on the minutes. All in favor say aye. Okay, the minutes have been approved. And uh, before I turn over to uh, Steve Day and to uh, John Pollock, on, um, first uh, John's going to give us instructions on the, or Jess will give us instructions on the microphone system. I, I just have a few comments, and Representative Schulte uh, also has a few. First, we, we would both, and I think the committee um, would like to extend to everybody a, a Merry Christmas and a Happy Holiday season, and hopefully by the end of the day, this will provide a little bit of joy for you, knowing that your hard work is, is moving in the right direction. Um, I would like to, at the beginning of the meeting, go through a little bit of a list of, of our staff that has helped us, and then Renee will identify the, the, the members of, um, of the department and consulting firm that has helped us. Um, we have been really lucky to have our caucus staff of the House and Senate and of the two parties uh, involved in this process, not only since the, the, the Last year, crafting the legislation that established the interim committee and the work groups and their hard work for the past several years, meeting with a, a, a lot of separate agencies, uh, advocacy groups, and uh, within their own caucuses to uh, work on our behalf to trying to get a handle on mental health redesign. Uh, that would involve uh, Chris Bell of the Senate Democratic staff, uh, Brad Tro of the House Republican staff, Zeke Furlow from the House Democratic staff, and Josh Brasek from the Senate Republican staff. We also want to acknowledge the hard work of the Legislative Service Agency, and let me just start by recognizing um, Sue Lerdahl, who today will be um, her last committee in the legislature. She's retiring. And if we could all just acknowledge Sue's hard work for us over the last couple of years. Um, such a, a small person punches a, has a very powerful punch when it comes to fiscal and administrative oversight, and Sue will be missed. Um, but, but equally missing will be her snacks 
So we, we will have a little bit of that today, but I understand Brad is is taking over that part of the responsibility. So we will match the two. Um, we have, uh, of course, John Pollock and Jess Bennett. Um, we have a new member uh, of the Fiscal Bureau, Aaron Todd, who will take over some of the responsibilities of Sue. We have um, Amber Desmet, who is uh, a new replacement for Deborah Thompson, who has left uh, legislative service agencies to take on the um, what they call an analyst position, but really is the legislative liaison for the Department of Public Health. And we have uh, today with us uh, Rachel Yelmes, um, who is sitting in for Patty Fernero. And so uh, we want to thank all of um, everybody to, who has been part of this process and continues to guide us. Um, one last comment before I give it to Representative Schulte. Um, the legislation requires a report by this legislative committee. It also requires legislation. At the end of today, um, it is our intention, and we will not leave unless, uh, without this being fully uh, understood um, and provided with enough information to legislative service agency, but as a result of our discussions and votes today, um, John Pollock and the Legislative Service Agency drafting staff, which will be John and, and Patty, will be drafting legislation that uh, we will have hopefully by the second or third week in January. When that draft is finished, um, Renee and I will, will call a meeting of the 12 members of the interim committee. It is our hope that all 12 members will sign on um, and sponsor the legislation so our members know the work that we've done and that they will be introduced in the House and Senate the same day and that we will be asking our leaders to allow us to have a joint House-Senate committee so that we will work on the, the, the more details of this plan together as legislators, not as members of two chambers and uh, two different parties. Uh, I think we have done an exceptional job making this a bipartisan process. We want to continue that in the legislative uh, session. Uh, there are going to be differences, um, but we want to make sure that the legislature gets the best um, uh, gets the best advice from all the people that have been involved. So by a joint committee, we'll be able to work together, have the same information provided to us, but more importantly, have the consumers, the advocates, the agencies, the counties, uh, the individuals who are concerned about how we're putting this together, have you come to one source and one place to hear the deliberations and not be confused by two separate uh, uh, committees with multiple different levels of discussion? And we're going to try to keep this so that, more importantly, the people of the state of Iowa can hear and know of the deliberations. Uh, with that, I'd like to pass on uh, pass this uh, mic on to uh, Representative Schulte. Um, she has done an extraordinary job within her caucus, within her communities, um, as all of our committees have uh, members have done, in making sure that the leadership of her party um, and uh, and Governor Branstad's uh, office um, knows of our progress and the process. Thank you. 
Well, I would like to say thanks to our department. We've uh, The Department of Human Services and the Department of Public Health have been at the table for the entire process, and we didn't give them a long time to get um, a lot of committee work done with the with the extended session last year. So I wanted to say thank you to all of them. I also wanted to thank Steve Day from TAC. I know we wouldn't be here as far as we are with the reports that we have in front of us with some decisions on the table had your group not come and helped us. So thank you very much for, for all your assistance. Um, what I'd like to just open this morning, we're going to be talking about some very difficult topics today. Today is going to be the funding conversation and the region's conversation. I just want to remind everyone in the audience and those listening from wherever you're listening that there's a couple of key things to think about. Uh, the, the surveys that are coming back from all of the different folks that have weighed in on our system, there are 1,700, 1,800 surveys in, and over half of our constituents in, around the state are not satisfied with the current system. So that means the current system, staying where we are, is not a good answer to a problem that we've got across our state. There's some good pockets of great things going on in Iowa, but we need to go forward and we need to move forward. And I think that you've seen a lot of work this session to do just that. So what I'm asking everyone here at the table this morning to talk about is there's some very difficult discussions. But one of the couple of different things I don't want people to forget. Sometimes we get stuck staring at the tree of the $125 million for county funding. And there's a forest of $1.2 billion in services that we need to keep in mind. So we need to stop looking at certain trees and get around to the whole picture. Some of the same subjects we keep having over and over again, we keep going around the mountain, we're not going to get anywhere. So today I'm just asking everybody to be creative, to be thoughtful, to look at solutions that are bigger and greater than the same conversations we've had over and over again. And so this morning we're going to turn it over to Director Palmer, Rick Schultz, and Sally Titus. Well, she's not here. I don't see Sally. You guys got it. And, and then we're going to have Steve Day at the table with us today to talk about some of the reports that have come out and talk about where we are moving forward, and then hopefully you'll have the agenda moving on. One more thing I just want to say thank you before I give the mic over to John for a conversation about the microphone. Um, we have cookies today for everyone because it's going to be holidays, and um, that's my favorite time of the year. And at lunchtime, there's going to be a choir singing for us. They were going to be here anyway, but we kind of crashed their party. So we're going to have a little break at lunch, and we'll have choir and we'll have cookies because it is the season to have fun. So, And that's for everyone, not just for those of us up front. So we're going to turn over the mic to John, and then we'll get started. Okay, we got a, we got a really good bargain on this sound system. And as a result, though, we have to want to ask people that are using it to, to compromise a little bit. So when you turn on the microphone, you kind of have to give it the two Mississippi rule because the sound won't turn on for... One Mississippi, two Mississippi, and then the the sound will actually turn on. You also have to speak with your mouth very close to the microphone. It it isn't going to reach out and grab you otherwise, and we won't be able to to hear what's said today. So anybody that's using the microphone, if you can keep the two Mississippi rule and to speak very close to the microphone rule, that would be great. Um, As Representative Schulte said and Senator Hatch, we are live streaming today's meeting as well for for people on the Internet. And then eventually we'll have this meeting and the last meeting as soon as the server's up and and running um, that will leave on the web and and can be accessed later on. Um, Just a couple things. We are going to drag more people into bill drafting than than just Patty and I, because both both Rochelle and, and Amber have been busy working on portions of, of the drafting for this already, and I'm sure we'll haul some more folks in as uh, as we c- 
kind of scatter to issues that are not normally in, in everybody's expertise. So that's just it on there. Unless, Jess, do you have anything else you want to add with that? We, we discovered last time that a cell phone or a, or, a, or, an, or a very large electronic watch also seemed to interfere with the microphone system. So keep that in mind if, if, uh, if you hear a lot of interference or, or static as you're using it. And that's it. Turn it over to the director. Okay, good, thank you. <clears throat> I've taken my watch off. Uh, I learned last that it interfered. Um, I'll be brief in my remarks. Uh, you have our final set of recommendations. Uh, I found that uh, as I've gone across the state and talked to groups, it's really helpful uh, to break this discussion into usually three. One is service delivery. Uh, that gets into the core service. Are and how. Uh, the second is uh, the regionalization, or what we refer to as the management and structure. And then the third is uh, what we're now, I think, going to get into uh, much more deeply today, uh, the financing. Uh, <clears throat> compared to the 165-page uh, report of uh, six committees, uh, my staff uh, required me to try to stay as close to 20 as I could, uh, so we have a much thinner uh, report. Uh, but as I mentioned to you before, I do lay out um, how I think this could roll out over uh, a five-year period and what the financing could be and what the cost of uh, the core services as we bring those on board and the timing. So that'll be, I think, really the important part of the discussion. Uh, since Rick did a lot of the pricing, uh, I'm going to have him really take the majority of uh, the conversation. Um, a vast majority of the recommendations that came out of the work groups are recommendations that I would support. So I haven't been redundant by going over those with you. I really uh, pointed out some areas where the department makes recommendations where I thought or where there needed to be further clarification of uh, uh, some areas of uh, so that's really where uh, the real meat, I think, is in uh, the timing and uh, how the core services would roll out and what I think is a uh, doable uh, financing uh, approach that we could either add to or reduce or take longer if uh, that's what's felt is necessary. Uh, <clears throat> there is an assumption that through one source or another, that uh, the 125 million, uh, that right now it's between 122 and 125, that is generated uh, through the tax uh, levy, that that somehow stay in the system. So that's a uh, that's a given or a uh, an assumption in our uh, in our proposal. Uh, there are some other assumptions uh, that we would get into uh, rebalancing. Uh, which is additional federal money.
uh, is ACA or healthcare reform money. Um, that if that happens, that's a huge windfall to uh, primarily the counties, where 150,000 individuals not covered today uh, and would be paid for by uh, by the counties if they enter into the mental health system. Uh, that that group of individuals would uh, go under uh, the Medicaid program, and that would lift. A significant uh, expenditure uh, off the counties for those individuals. So, uh, if that were to happen, uh, if it does build in uh, a little bit of growth for uh, Medicaid and for uh, the county-funded, 100% county-funded services. assumptions. Um, who now after two months coming up from Kansas, uh, if the numbers don't work out over time, we'll know who to blame because obviously he's using Kansas numbers uh, in this. Uh. So, Rick... now. All right, very good. Uh, with you today, the proposals that we, we have, I'm very, I'm very proud to have an opportunity to participate in this work. I have not seen this much uh, interest in with disabilities uh, are provided the services they need in, in my entire career. So I'm very proud to be a part of this effort and very pleased to be uh, here in Iowa to participate in this, kind of humbled in the, in the process. Well, let me talk to you a little bit about the uh, overall concepts that are embedded in the uh, proposed financing of this. Uh, the, uh, first of all, let's start... Problems that is eroding the kid services. That's maybe all right. How's that? Is that any better? All right. We'll keep trying this. Uh, there is a, when you have this uh, uh, somewhat fixed amount of money and Medicaid is growing at the rate that it's growing as a result of ARA and just general growth in, uh, and just general growth in Medicaid, it is reducing the amount of uh, available funds for uh, serving people who are not Medicaid eligible and for providing services that are not Medicaid reimbursable. And I would note that that is uh, primarily, that uh, hits primarily individuals with mental illness. 
because they are uh, individuals who have uh, more difficulty in, in uh, achieving Medicaid eligibility, and uh, some of their services are not Medicaid eligible. So uh, as the amount of funds Medicaid needs goes up, the amount of funds for uh, non-Medicaid services goes down. Uh, currently, we're forecasting based on our most recent forecasts, and I think many of you have seen these before, and uh, Sally Titus presented them to you, at, I think, at your last meeting. Uh, we're projecting $143 million uh, being available for non-Medicaid services in fiscal year 2012. Uh, and uh, with the increased cost of Medicaid, we're looking at uh, that going down by $56 million to $87.5 million in fiscal year 2013. So that's one of the serious challenges that we're facing in terms of moving forward. Uh, the other, Of course, the other challenge that we have is that we have a fairly complex system whereby we uh, provide funds to the counties, the, count, the uh, individuals in the counties incur Medicaid services. Those Medicaid services, uh, uh, some of those Medicaid services are the responsibilities of the counties, so the counties take the funds that we've sent them and turn around and send them back to us. Uh, and we have uh, uh, lots of transactions going on in that way. So we have a, uh, a system whereby uh, parts of it are eroding, uh, another si and, and uh, that has a great deal of complexity to it, and so we are trying to put together a process whereby we can uh, stop the erosion of those funds, those non-Medicaid funds, and reduce the complexity of the system. So the proposal, the high-level overview of the proposal is that the state would assume the responsibility of the Medicaid, uh, cost of Medicaid, and provide the full uh, required non-federal match for Medicaid. As uh, Director Palmer just mentioned, uh, the proposal includes $122 million to continue to uh, be available for uh, providing non-Medicaid level services in whatever form uh, it's decided. Currently, that's the, uh, raised in property taxes. And then uh, recognition that the cost of those services grows both Medicaid and non-Medicaid services grows each year. The cost of providing any service grows, recognizing that. Phasing in implementation of the uh, new critical core services that we've recommended in our report that came out of the work groups, in addition to the services currently being provided. And then strategies to offset, uh, offset the costs that are being recommended uh, the kinds of things that we can put a, our finger on. Now, there may be some savings in the future, and I'll touch on that in a minute, but... Um Rick, if, if I could just uh, direct the committee to page 10, 11, and 12 of right. your uh, December 9th meeting of recommendations, right. December 9th uh, document. That, um, that is the area that you're talking about right now. That's the area we're talking about right now. Okay. Just, yep. If anybody has that in the audience as well, yep. it's page uh, 10, 11, and 12, 13, 14, 15. The charts are yep. well and, explained. Then the charts follow. Right. Thank you. Right. Thank you. As I mentioned, the uh, uh, first part of the proposal would be uh, for the uh, state to uh, 
assume the responsibility, the full responsibility of the non-federal share of Medicaid. Currently, we are uh, providing $171 million in general funds uh, to the counties. And um, I, I think, yeah, $171 million to the counties. And if that amount of funds were instead provided to the Medicaid appropriations, uh, and the amount of funds, additional funds that uh, the counties are providing uh, were replaced, it would require $47.4 million in additional funds. Now, as I walk down this, you'll find that the final recommendation is uh, $42 million. And uh, the $42 million is after all of the steps have been accomplished, including the, the uh, identified savings in, in the plan. So... I think it might be helpful. Um, different different folks can follow things in different ways. But if we go to the uh, first uh, page 13 on the chart, and I can walk through the arrows that can provide a little bit of uh, understanding for what we're trying to accomplish here. Like the bottom line to this is to find the general fund that's in the system that could potentially be made available and make sure that it is available then to provide the state match, uh, the uh, non-federal share of Medicaid. And so what you see on page 13 in the first set of columns is a set of numbers that it comes out of, uh, different, uh, out of charts that you've seen previously. The $231 million in Medicaid, which is that middle number on the page, the $87.5 million for non-Medicaid, which is near the bottom of that chart, and the $318.6 million uh, in total state funding in the system uh, related to county funding. Those are numbers that came out of uh, previous charts that uh, Sally Titus reviewed with you previously. One of the assumptions that we make is uh, right now we're giving the counties all of the funds and when Medicaid bills come due, the counties send them back to us. Well, once the counties have the funds, they go into they go into a single fund, and uh, they're intermingled, and you have to sort out what money goes where. This assumes, this set of numbers assumes, that the first dollar that's used for Medicaid match is the state dollars that are sent to the counties. In making that assumption, that helps, helps us sort out where the money is and how it can be, how it can possibly be used. So under that assumption, the, uh, since there is uh, more in Medicaid match is required than the state funds that are sent, there's $171.2 million in state general funds sent to the counties. That amount of money could go into the Medicaid administrative fund or in, into the Medicaid fund. And that's where you see the first small aerial where the... $171.2 million would go into that amount. We also have the state payment program, which is state general funds. We would maximize those funds by moving those into Medicaid to give you a total starting point of $183.6 million in Medicaid. In order to get to the full $231 million, $47.4 million would have to be added. So that gets you the full amount for Medicaid, the same amount that is currently being projected, and the same amount that you've been talking about 
uh, over these several months. But what it does do is it frees up $59.7 million that can be moved back into uh, non-Medicaid-funded services. $59.8 million. It's the, it's the number that gets with the arrow that goes down, the long arrow that goes down. That plus using the money that's under the uh, social service block grant line item allows you allows the proposal to provide for non-Medicaid services $135 million. So that's the way in which this uh, impending drop in non-Medicaid funding is addressed in this proposal. By providing state funds for Medicaid, freeing up what is currently county funding for non-Medicaid, that benefits the non-Medicaid side and gets to $135 million. That's the first step in the, in the proposal related to Medicaid. Uh, the second part of the proposal is recognizing in future years, 2014, 15, 16, and 17, that the cost for both Medicaid and non-Medicaid services is going to increase. And so there's a line in each one of those. If you look uh, under Medicaid expenditures, you'll see estimated 3% growth. And you'll see $6.9 million under fiscal year 14. And you'll see that that increases 3% across those years. Likewise, under non-Medicaid, you'll see a line that says 3% growth, the increased cost of non-Medicaid. You'll see under fiscal year 14, $4 million. And you'll see that growth that goes across. Yes, I've got a question um, regarding the growth estimates. Is that um, essentially the same service system we have now, or is that expanded VI, getting widow, getting more people on waivers, or is that essentially like no no service growth in terms of your projected increases? That's that's uh, a, the same service system that we have now, right? Right. One of, one of the things that uh, we mentioned... Question, question I have. So when I look at the chart and, and I see estimated 3% growth at increased cost for non-Medicaid, the counties, and they're utilizing their levy for non-Medicaid services, correct, in our plan? Correct. So the 3% growth then... Beginning in 2018, I'm to understand that that the money for that will come from the state to the counties, or will their levies generate that three percent? Under the, under this proposal, the increase would come to go to the regions, and it would be funded with uh, state general fund. 
Okay. So we would be looking, continue to look at funding non, non-Medicaid services, the growth of those with state dollars. Correct. Okay. Correct. Now, wh- one of the things that, that was mentioned a couple of times uh, already this morning is the likelihood that as the new core services uh, go into place, there are, there are going to be savings. Uh, and there are going to be savings in non-Medicaid and Medicaid services. In non-Medicaid, as those savings are, in, as we find those savings, and uh, that those funds could be used for additional services. Those would be uh, accrued to the regions. So that's the that's the first the most complex in the first stage of uh, financing redesign. The second phase goes on to the next page, page 14. There already are, a as has been mentioned, uh, excellent services being provided uh, in, in many ways across Iowa and already established uh, core services that exist. These are additional core services that are either uh, not generally available or, if available, not available uh, consistently across the state. These are also core services that uh, we're recommending because they have the greatest impact on the quality of people's lives and improving their lives and the greatest likelihood that there's going to be savings in high-end, more costly services that we're currently utilizing. So in looking at the recommendations that came out of the the work groups, the services that uh, were most consistently recommended and the kinds of things that uh, uh, are going to really improve people's lives and reduce our use of high-end services. These estimates are... Uh, are exactly that. They're estimates. We've had uh, tremendous assistance from TAC uh, and HRSI in coming up with estimates. We've looked at the costs that have occurred in other states. We have looked at the costs that have been occurred, incurred in Iowa uh, and uh, extrapolated some of those costs across the whole state to come up with these estimates. So these are estimates on uh, the cost of those services. I'll try not to go into the entire uh, list line by line, but try to hit the highlights and then see if you have any have any questions. Obviously, the uh, the amounts are in millions. Uh, we did start off with uh, what we believed. We believe the uh, recommendation to start off with providing technical assistance to the regions as they're being formed by the counties, and so there's some funding in there for that, some one-time funding. Um, but we also uh, we're also believing that we can begin our work in serving children who live out of uh, out of state and helping to bring them home soon, and so we're suggesting that those services begin in fiscal year 13. Uh, the actual cost of the delivery of services uh, is not shown here because, uh, as you all know. The cost of providing those services is very expensive out of state, and we believe that in Iowa we can provide those services uh, for the same amount. The key, of course, is to provide the care coordination that are necessary 
for individuals. And what we're recommending here is establishing health homes. Uh, the recommendation that came out of the Children's Work Group recommending the establishment of health, Medicaid health homes that will allow for that intensive coordination for children with more uh, extensive needs. And so that cost is here, but the additional cost of serving the children, there is no additional cost because they'll come home. Uh, we also have in here the implementation of the assessments. That is one of the things that was recommended highly. And uh, some additional co administrative costs that we believe will will incur as a, as a result of organizing and getting ready. So in that first year, we're looking at uh, $5 million general funds for the cost of implementing in fiscal year 13. The rest of these services get phased in beginning about midway in fiscal year 14. We believe that the uh, regions need an opportunity to get organized. They need an opportunity to get uh, to do their evaluation, that there's not going to be a tremendous amount of increased services that first year. So this gives them an opportunity to get started, and we begin truly to phase in new added core services. The critical ones that have been identified are crisis services, subacute services, peer support, self-help services, employment services, positive behavior supports, health homes, um, expanded peer services, um, post-acute neurorehabilitation for individuals with brain injury. So those are the ones that we're recommending be phased in beginning in fiscal year 2014. What you'll see on this chart are, in many cases, not every case, but in most cases, two sets of numbers for each one of those items. An amount that would be used to, to be put in the Medicaid appropriation and an amount that would be put into the regional appropriation. These are our estimates as to how that particular uh, expense would split out between uh, being reimbursed by Medicaid and not being reimbursed by Medicaid. Continuing to have the regions responsible for the non-Medicaid costs with these, uh, with these amounts and uh, having Medicaid responsible for the Medicaid amounts. So I think you've heard uh, in previous work group presentations that, uh, for example, crisis services. Crisis services, it's very difficult for crisis services to be provided on a fee-for-service basis. I think the example you've heard, the example we've used, is that it's not, not very feasible to run a fire department and pay them by the fire. And so... Uh, that's that's kind of what you're looking at, is coming up with a way to provide 24-hour crisis access to services and to be able to cover those things that aren't Medicaid reimbursable. So you see on that particular line item a significant amount of recommended general fund that's not Medicaid reimbursed. We had to come up with some assumptions as to how many are going to how much is going to be Medicaid reimbursed. We consulted with our colleagues at TAC and and other places and and came up with these with these. Uh, Estimates. Uh, Subacute, um, that, uh, that, that runs the same way. You see the Medicaid and non-Medicaid. Um, and then some of, some of the programs you'll see, like uh, opening up um, uh, peer-run drop-in centers, less likely to be Medicaid reimbursable, although we will certainly look at every opportunity to use Medicaid. 
So this chart lays out uh, a proposal for phasing these programs in over 2013, 14, and then beginning in 15, we add a few more services. You'll see at the bottom of the page, you'll see the assertive community treatment, the increased transportation for commitment, uh, completing pre-commitment screenings. Uh, we believe that we need the regions to become a little bit more mature before we get to those points. Recommending phasing those in over the rest of the five-year plan. And you see at the very bottom of the page the estimates for phasing those course new critical core services in across the state. Okay, it works. So, back to I, I'm, I'm real interested in 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 improving in services. Now, in the area of uh, um, further developing uh, supported employment, okay. that, that that we will um, start moving in that direction in 2014. Yes, that's, that's what this plan calls for, is to is begin that process in fiscal year 2014 with the inceptions of the regions. Okay, and but but you have expenditures in front of that at $2 million a year. Well, what if we were to come up with a plan that would be more than $2 million a year? We looked at the uh, what are the potential costs and what are the potential offsets related to providing supportive employment. And uh, I think the, the bottom line is that there is already, a just like children from out of state, yeah. we're already spending money for children from out of state. We bring that into state. Just like that, we would have individuals already providing, getting certain day services, and uh, they would move to supportive employment. So this would be the incremental difference. Okay, I understand. Thank you. Yep. Okay, so... Oh. I just want to go back. Really? There, there? All right. Okay, I have a question going back to where you're talking about bringing the children back to the state of Iowa, and, and it looks like you're doing it over a several-year phase so that we have the infrastructure in place to be able to um, service them within the state. My question is, does your plan also address the current 900 and some kids that are on, for example, like the uh, CMH waiver? Because last year there were 600 and some. And right now there's 900 some. I'm just not quite seeing that in here as well. It, that's a that's a good question. What you're seeing here are the increased costs. So if the costs are already in the budget, which they which they are for those children, that doesn't show up here. 
Okay, so I'm, okay, I'm still not quite clear on that. So, so it doesn't address those kids at all. They would stay on the waiting list while we are. Oh, yes. Yeah, I think why we're phasing this in over the next several years. That that's an important point. This these recommendations do not address waiting lists. They address the change in how services are delivered, not the amount of services are delivered. So waiting lists are not addressed in this in this recommendation. Okay, thank you. So if Okay, yep. Um, just, and I apologize, I should have asked this earlier. The 3% growth, it, would that, do you anticipate that that would be built into the bill? And if so, would it be subject to legislative amendment? Well, I, th- I think uh, any commitment for appropriation is probably subject to, to change. Um, but I think that what needs to be recognized is that there is, year to year, there's an increased cost in, in the delivery of services. Okay, on page 12, if I back you up just a little bit, what you see is um, after, after we have uh, in, counted the savings, uh, that Director Palmer has already described to you, then you see the cumulative estimated cost of this proposed re- the proposed redesign. And the f- that chart right in the middle of the page, what you see beginning in fiscal year 13 is $42.3 million. That $42.3 million is the amount for the state to assume the responsibility of Medicaid to begin the process of phasing in uh, those services that I described and the net savings from the rebal- from the balancing uh, of institutional and community services uh, that and the savings in uh, state funds that would occur from the federal government giving us additional 2% Medicaid. So you see $42.3 million in fiscal year 13, above what's already planned for fiscal year 13. This is above what's already planned on that first line. Fiscal year 14 is $68.8 million above what is already planned for fiscal year 13. So it's important to recognize that the $42.3 million is included in that amount for fiscal year 14. All right? So you can see that if you go down to the second line where it says year-to-year increase. Of course, the 42.3 is the same, but the next year is an additional $26.5 million over 13. The next year would be $31.7 million above 14, $20.7 million above 15, and then $11.8 million above 16. So we're really showing the cost in two different ways, the amount above the base and the year-to-year change. Thank you. I, I had a couple questions um, on, or just general general questions on page 14. It seems like the estimates are all uh, pretty frugal. 
pretty pretty light in terms of, and I guess I'm, I'm just assumptions that went into this. Um, how many regions did you think we would have? Did you did you go through any process of we'll establish ten regions and here's what it's going to cost to crisis services crisis services in ten regions or what were your assumptions about that? Yeah, I, that's one example. I think we were we were thinking along the lines of about ten regions. About ten regions. But I think it's important to go all the way back to the appendix uh, on page twenty one. Uh, because one of the things that this the chart doesn't show is the amount of money that would be generated from Medicaid. And that's one of the reasons we decided to put in appendix uh, in, in appendix one on page 11, page 21 so that the full amount could be seen. So you pointed out, for example, crisis services, the amount you see on the chart, which is the general fund increase, would, uh, net another $10 million in federal funding. So the full amount of estimated crisis services is $37.1 million. And and in terms of feedback from, you made estimates, what was the stakeholder group? I mean, were, were local providers. I mean, I'm just trying to get a sense of, you know, the, the, the numbers are really important going forward here because we're, we're being asked to make some big changes in the system, and there are some people around the table that are concerned that we're going to have enough resources to, to move from where we are to where we all want to go. And so in terms of all these, I look at the BI chain, you know, whether that, mm-hmm. I guess some of this is a guess as to what kind of, you know, demand they'll be for some of these services as they're expanded. Um, so d- talk about that in terms of just process. Who all was involved in generating these estimates? The, uh, it was, uh, TAC was a, was a critical help in quite a few of the estimates and looking at what's going on in, in the nation. We looked at what was happening within Iowa where there are examples of services that are already occurring in Iowa. Uh, and uh, then said, what would happen if we had those available in every region? Uh, and then we looked at a handful of, of other places that w- were already uh, doing these services to see what the what the costs were if they weren't occurring in Iowa. Uh, so some out-of-state numbers. And that's essentially how we arrived at, at these. Okay, thank you. Um, the first item is technical assistance awarded to regions. You really, I don't know if half a million dollars is enough, but I do think that uh, it's, it's quite optimistic to think we're only going to do one year of technical assistance. Uh, there's no money budgeted for 14. I just, I think, I think moving from where we are to a, a whole new structure is going to require extraordinary amount of technical assistance, and so I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that we make sure we invest well on that line. And, and, and maybe for more than one fiscal year. The, the final question I had was what you were just reco- on the rebalancing. Right. Uh, the savings from rebalancing. It sounds like we, we may be in line for some federal, a federal grant to go to, to try and do some rebalancing and, and an enhanced Medicaid match perhaps. Do, are there goals with that? I mean, do we have to, is there some requirement in terms of 
less people institutionalized, more in the community, and some number that we, we, yes. we have to meet to get there. And uh, could you talk a little bit more in detail about that? Sure. Thank the, you. Absolutely. Rebalancing the, the uh, in short, the goal that the federal government would have is that we would spend the same amount on community-based services as we spend on institutional-based services. Currently in Iowa, we're spending about 60% on institutional-based services using their methods for calculating and 40% on um, community-based services. The forecast in the coming year is that that would would change to be uh, somewhere closer to 44% community services. Uh, and so the goal would be to, to uh, uh, over time, 50-50. Um, it's, not inclar- it's not entirely clear what the federal government uh, would do if, if we didn't meet those goals. What they, their, their full expectation is if we uh, implement the three requirements that they have, that that will, just, that will take place. If we have conflict-free case management, follow that those rules. If we, um, if we have a assessment process, which is, was already recommended by the work groups, and a central point of entry into the system that, uh, that the state would more than likely meet those goals. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, the, so the, the first year, I mean, $47 million is a lot of money in terms of a first year, and it's going to require that we go out and find that money. Um, does this not move forward if we don't do that? I mean, help me. What, what, maybe that's a question for Chuck. I think with any of these estimates, uh, I think we'll learn more as we go in, in terms of what's real. I think uh, if you wanted to do the Medicaid buy-down in two steps, you could do that. Uh, I think there are some things that we can move ahead. What we tried to do is to get this off to a fairly quick start. Uh, you put uh, last year about $35 million in the system, uh, so the 42 is not uh, that great a stretch beyond what you previously expended. Um, I think as you wrestle with uh, all of this, it's a matter of uh, where some of the priorities are, uh, including waiting lists. Uh, We really addressed what it would take to bring about the new system and uh, what the costs were in that. Uh, I think you have a plan that you could make a seven-year plan. We We said five. I think it's a question of the dollars that you have and what's doable and what uh, what your priorities are, and this is how we would recommend starting it. And uh, the quicker you lift the Medicaid um, expenses off the counties, the more likely you are to avoid some of that uh, cannibalization of Medicaid costs against non-Medicaid. I'm going to go from earlier. Um, since that... 
children, the state currently has that responsibility. I look at the total waiting list, and we have about 4,750 people on the waiting list that I'm calculated in. So would that be about 10 million or so? I mean, looking at last year's figures, if I'm coming somewhere from there, to folks that we currently, the state's currently be glad to uh, calculate that for you. As you know, you still are reducing the waiting list. Uh, I think the projection uh, uh, for this next year uh, would be about uh, 447 brain injury slots and about 600 uh, children slots. Uh, so you've cleared some waiting list, and you were planning to put uh, you're planning to continue on that into this year. So there still is of the waiting list going on. And this That becomes, I think, overall a, uh, a question of the priority. If you would rather go slower on some of the core services that we're proposing and place a higher emphasis on, uh, on the waiting list, again, what we tried to do was to show you what it would take to implement the core services and to get the system moving in the direction we think it needs to move. I, I appreciate that. I just also looking at Medicaid currently have already with these individuals if they're calculated in, we're adding in those additional costs that we're meeting those needs, and that we're not just moving ahead with the system and then letting the waiting list expand even further. I mean, I, I could say nice things about what's been accomplished, but I don't have any particular details to add. I think that um, the report that you all have in front of you really does take our 155 or so page report that was generated really by the by the work groups, the ideas of the work groups, and the conclusions of the work groups. It, it distills it down into an action plan that is, a, I think, a nice balance of feasibility with. Um, you know, the reality that you all want to make the system move forward and make some important changes in it, I think it does give you a sense of prioritization in terms of how to move forward. One of the things that we tried to advise DHS on in terms of the cost estimates was that, you know, what are the things that would give you the um, best return on investment in terms of making early changes in the system? And if you want to rebalance uh, your long-term care costs and institutional costs over a long period of time, what are some of the tools you would have to put in place at the community level to make that happen and to make sure that people don't fall through the cracks um, when moving from institutional settings into community settings? You have a lot of opportunity to do that, but you do need some infrastructure in place to make that that happen. And I think that that as, as we talked with, with DHS about the, the ways to think about moving the system forward, the focus is really on building the putting in place the building blocks for a community system of care, or commu several systems of care for kids and adults. Um, the building blocks that would allow you to get the the quality that you want down the road um, as you're making other changes in the system. 
you will have fewer people living in institutions. You want to make sure that the quality of their life in the community is good, which means you need to have a single points of accountability. You need to have crisis services. You need to have data, the capacity to track data about how well they're doing, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's, I think, what this plan really focuses on. So I, I think that that, um, that makes a lot of sense. And I do, just from an outside point of view, as you know, I, you know, being a consultant is always sort of, um, you know, have to be responsive to the, to the um, needs and wants of the client, basically the state of Iowa. Um, but we also have our own perspectives and our own thoughts about things. And I, uh, as you know, I have a somewhat long relationship with Iowa, and I have my own attitudes and opinions, which I've been more than free to express. <laughs> but, um, I think that this plan really does pre- present some good opportunities for you all to, to make some needed changes in the system and around the core services and around the, the, the way the financing works. And to I keep going back to something that Representative Schulte said in the very early days of this process is to try to reduce transactional friction. And I, um, by reducing transactional friction, I think you can also um, just make it, make it clearer what people's roles are in the system, who's responsible for what, who's accountable for what, um, and what people are spending their time on and what people should be spending their time on. Um, so I, I, I do think that, the, that, in general, the approach to try to clear up this whole Medicaid match and, and to reduce the amount of times that your institutions and your counties and various others are having to do bookkeeping transactions to keep track of all of that, that should allow you to put some more focus on what you really want to do, which is to improve quality of services for your customers, for the people who need the services. So, um, you know, I can, I'm can i here primarily to provide sort of um, additional background information as you go through the discussion, as you start talking about some of the specific recommendations. If you hit a place where you want more information about whether people are doing in other states, et cetera, I'd be happy to weigh in. But I think this is one of those one of those very nice times in a consultant's life where you watch the process move from sort of the consulting end of things to the actual implementation of things. This is really in in your bailiwick now. This is your plan. This is your set of decisions. And um, it's, um, it's, it's sort of, from my perspective, and I know from the perspective of the TAC and the HSRI people that worked on this, we're very gratified to see this kind of progress and to see that you're actually looking at the recommendations of the work groups in a very serious way and, and trying to find ways to implement them, knowing that there's some tough resource decisions and some tough s- structural decisions to be made. All right. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I'd like to next call up the panel of um, state agents, uh, legislative service agency, the uh, Jess Benson John Pollock, Michael Duster, and Jeff Robinson. The LSA's panel will bring up issues and um, some considerations regarding the finance options for the committee to consider.
Okay, need a taller chair. I think everybody's experienced that they have a friend. I have a friend in my life that uh, that we always call the world's leading expert. He's an engineer. He usually has a, he usually has the right answer for everything. His mind. And uh, when we were looking for this part of the, today's program, we tried to find a world's leading expert and found out there really isn't one. So you have a, so you're getting a, you're getting four of us, and I know there are more people in the room that could really play that role and add more information because there isn't anybody that seems to have system. I'm going to get my watch down out of the way. It looks like. Um, so today we we put together some some handouts. So I'm going to refer you to, first off, there's a sheet that says assumptions and, and issues about today's system. I want to apologize to my, my colleagues that are that are live streaming this because that, that particular handout inadvertently didn't get posted. It'll get posted a little bit later today. The second one has a, has a bunch of spreadsheets and it has, uh, it starts off, it says fiscal year 12 state and county mental health and disability services funds. And the third one is the ISAC uh, county mandate report. And that has the, the portion that only deals with mental health. So we're going to divvy this up. And then, uh, so we have Jess and myself, Michael Deuster's here. And then we never imagined in our wildest dreams that we would get ahead of, ahead of things on our agenda. So um, Jeff Robinson is coming also from the, from the fiscal staff, and, and he should be here shortly. Um, the reason why we have some is we're going to try to answer any questions that you might have, both on state financing and, and county financing, and I'm sure there are more people in the room that, that have some expertise there. Um, so let's go, let's go to that sheet that, that talks about assumptions and considerations. And, and let's just walk through them really quickly. I don't want to. I don't. I'm, I'm going to try to be the spokesperson for this point and have folks chip in. But this is really uh, the outcome of, of a, a bunch of staff brainstorming sessions to try to di- distill down the ideas that we thought you might need to, to know about about the current system, and also about about well, what might happen if uh, given the given the set of circumstances ahead of us. So let's look here on, on page one of that one where it talks about assumptions and considerations regarding changes to the current system. So the first item, number one, is just a snapshot. So under, under the current system, just to remind you, this is a unique one in that, that, that almost every county property tax levy has a cap on it. This one is the dollar cap. So it, it talks about that. And uh, each county then takes that dollar cap that they have, and they convert that to their own levy rate. And as a result, there's a, there's, a, there's a disparity among the levy rates in the county. So the low is around 20 cent, 21 cents per thousand. The high is around $2.38 per thousand uh, among the counties and what they levy, levy for mental health. Um, I know the low one is Dickinson, and Jess has it on the on the sheet. Plymouth County is the is the is the current high. Excuse me, Jasper, Jasper, Jess says. In the past, I think Wapolo has had that distinction of having the high. 
when we when we did the reform back in the nineties, number two kind of talks about the three policy objectives that most legislators had in mind the last time we changed that. And uh, the first one was controlling uh, of expenditure. I don't know, it's kind of cutting in out. We'll just keep going. There we go. It must be that watch thing. But it was, one of the objectives was to control, cap off uh, this, this particular area of property tax. So county levies were, were capped. There was also a lot of frustration because no one, no one seemed to get a good idea on how, how much was being spent and, uh, and where. So one of the things we set up was a separate fund for these expenditures in the county system so that it was easier to track what's being spent overall. And the third part was probably the first thing, and that was to add more professional management into the system, and that's where we developed the, the CP system. And talked a lot was being able to retain the, the system and adding in uh, some more enhancements, but not but not losing what's what are advantages in the current system. There are a lot of criticisms uh, about the current as well, and that's in number three. So, a little, a little bit on there, and it talks about inequities and gaps. It talks about inequities and gaps in provider reimbursement rates, the funding levels between counties the service quality and quantity. There are also uh, discussions about service delays and denials from using the legal settlement approach. We've already talked about that friction idea. And then I need to shift away from in, in the institutional services to more community-based, which is usually called that Olms, the Olms, puts under comes under the Olmstead heading. Number four, uh, I think you're all aware of, but the current property tax system on the county side of it and the state property tax relief funding all gets repealed as of now on July 1, 2013. So number five goes to um, probably the second half of the of, of the repeal side that's been raised. And that's why you have this ISAC county mandate report that's in here. This just has the part that deals with the uh, MHMRDD portion of the funding. The county mandate report is much, much longer than this, but the report that's attached has those mandates. So the, so the, um, one of the things that the committee could decide to do is to take a take a run at those mandates and revise those for, for counties, at least in this particular area, or either revise those mandates or shift them to the state. Um, number six, then is a set of options to to address those repeals, those and this is just a list of those. And again, staff tried to just brainstorm and list the uh, all the things that, that might happen. So A would be you could leave those repeals in, a, in place, but you could enact new property tax or, or new state funding provisions in order to replace that that $125 million in funding or enhance it. As we heard before, I think the idea is that there's going to be need, needs for more money to come in the system in order to, to, to get equity and improve services. B, you could uh, move the repeal dates back. That would be keeping the current system and just removing those repeal dates back. 
see you can uh, you could you could identify some sort of trigger. Maybe it would be a, a financing level uh, from from the state, or or maybe it would be some other policy provision that 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 would be used to shift that those repeals to a different date. Uh, D, you could reinstate the property tax authority, but base it on a levy rate limit rather than a dollar amount limit. And that's an idea that's been been kicked around for a very long time, uh, at least in several proposals that have been made for for changing the system. E, you could uh, replace the repeals with an incremental phase-out of county funding and and, uh, replace that with state funding instead. F, you could reinstate one of the, the Senate File 69 changes was to uh, remove the supplemental levy authority uh, been available to counties for this level of funding. So one of the things that could be done is to reinstate that supplemental levy authority. And one of the other ideas that's been raised is to instead have uh, some sort of uh, dollar rate or, or limit on that supplemental levy authority. And the last one is... Uh, just eliminate the repeals and keep uh, the current financing system. And then the last couple of ideas on this side of the page uh, are to, if you do reinstate the levy uh, levy limit, would there be would you reinstate it with a, a set rate or uh, some sort of maximum rate, or would, would it be the current dollar that we've been operating with? And number eight. Uh, it's sort of implied on, on the on the presentation here that that we'll be able to put put the funding plan in place and that will work. But I, I we just wanted to remind you that currently we're using a, a way to manage funding and, and is that something that you'd want to continue? I mean, we'll stop there just so so you can discuss or you have any questions about these and take it from there. Does anybody on the committee have any questions through the first half of their report? All right, John, just keep on going. Well, flip, flip the sheet over first, and there's a whole whole nother. Well, we'll move that over to Jess. But these are things that 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 staff looked at and said these could be policy objectives as we're revising the system. And Jess is going to go through with you some examples and scenarios that you could you could either say we want to go that general direction and, and then other work could be done. Let's look at some. Number one, the, a redesigned system should strive to equalize the funding capacity between counties and try to eliminate the current disparities. Uh, Chuck already mentioned that you'd want to try to keep that $125 million in the system in some way, shape, or form. Uh, There's always been talk about some sort of phasing in, that that it doesn't all happen at once if we change it. Uh, Just want to remind you that if there's any kind of change done in the levy, levies going to be adds or subtracts. Some counties' rates would go up, some would go down. 
there are very there be a very few that are that are near the averages or near the target rates that wouldn't change much at all. But almost every other county, there would be some sort of changing. Um, we also assume that, as is done with school aid, that there would be some sort of state revenue that, that could be used to equalize those disparities on, in the property tax side of things. Uh, number six is that the current school school aid approach, the, there's a foundation level that's set and that shared bottom two blocks combined gets to 87.5%. Uh, it's been said that one, the reason it doesn't go to, to 100% is that there wasn't state funding available to, to get there. But if we're looking at a reform here, maybe that is something that could be looked at is to, to move that to more of a 100% level between the, the, the state and locals rather than the 87.5%. And then number seven is kind of some other ideas that have been in the in the past but just for ease of discussion today we didn't use any any one of those in particular but it doesn't mean that 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 some sort of change like this could look at some different assumptions any any questions about some of those and then maybe for this last part maybe we could uh, go through Jess's sheets and then come back to those So uh, we're going to start. We're going to start with the first sheet. On uh, this is something that I worked on for Representative Smith. Uh, it basically shows the county administered dollars and the state administered dollars uh, by county, and then uh, it kind of does a percentage of state versus county just to show uh, how much money is going where. So uh, if you look at this, the, the first column is state-administered, so that's the $171 million that uh, Rick was talking about in the previous presentation, plus it has the, uh, the, the federal block grant in there just because those are distributed from the state to the counties. And then the second uh, column is the, what the counties currently levy. So if you want to see what counties currently levy, uh, you can see uh, that in the second column. Uh, third column is just the total, and then fourth is the percentage. So in general, uh, counties levy about 40% uh, of total funds, and the state provides the other 60%, so it's a 60-40 split. But it, var it varies greatly between uh, counties. So, for example, uh, Plymouth County only or receives 80% of their funding from the state, and they only levy about 18% uh, of, of what they receive. And on the other end, uh, Carroll County uh, levies about 63% of their funds, and they get about 36.5% from the state. So uh, this is just kind of a, a sheet to give you a, a, just a general picture of where we're at now. Yes. Um, so this looks to me, as, as I uh, study this document, it looks to me the, like the uh, counties that had a cap of a low dollar amount uh, the state has put more money into the service delivery over the years. Is that? I would, yeah, I would think that would be accurate. I mean, All right, thanks. Exactly. 
So uh, the next sheet, if you turn to the average levy rate distribution on the next page, this is basically basically what I did here was I said, what's the average levy rate? If you look at all the levy rates and you, or you, you look at all the dollar caps and you, you convert that to a rate, what would the average rate be? So it turns out it's, it's 96 cents per thousand. So uh, starting from the left to the right, uh, you see the maximum levy dollar cap on the left uh, side and then what the current levy rate is. So currently, uh, counties levy from $0.20, cents, uh, as John said earlier, in Dickinson County. And then if you switch over to the backside in bold, you'll see uh, Jasper County is at almost $2.38. So um, basically what I did is I converted all those rates, uh, or, in, or, in, or I said, what if everybody levies just the average of $0.96 per, uh, cents per thousand? And uh, just to see what, what difference it would, it would provide. So, uh, for example, on the front side, uh, Dickinson uh, County would have to increase their property taxes from $412,000 at their current maximum levy to uh, about $1.4 or $1.5 million uh, if you were to go this route. So, otherwise, you know, the, uh, if you could do something where the state was subsidizing p- uh, counties uh, if you didn't want to raise property taxes, that's always an, an option. But... Uh, so this kind of illustrates the uh, just how wide a gap there is and what it would take to get everybody to a, a, a standard rate. That makes sense. So and the, so the way I broke this up is uh, on the front side of the sheet on page one. Uh, these are the counties that would all have have to either increase their property ta- or would have to increase their property taxes. And on the back side of the sheet, uh, these are counties that would uh, see a property tax decrease because their rates are higher than the ninety six cents per thousand. So in uh, each side, uh, it's it would it would be about nineteen million dollars and change on each side then to, to bring everybody back to zero. So on the next sheet, uh, this is uh, a different idea to do a per capita levy rate. So uh, this is basically, uh, instead of using property value, you're just uh, looking at population and you're saying, we're going to raise you know, X amount of dollars per thousand or per person uh, in each county. So uh, what this does is it looks at the population of each county. And it, uh, what we did is we took the current uh, levies and we converted those to a per capita rate. And then we uh, looked at the, kind of the average, again, of the per capita rate, and that's $41.29 per thousand is what it would take to, to levy the same $125.8 million in counties. Uh, so currently, counties are, are on the front side. You can see uh, Dickinson County is levying uh, about $0.34 cents per thousand or, or uh, if, at, at $41.29, or $41.29 per person. Uh, and uh, their new rate, or I'm sorry, they're currently levying 20 cents per thousand. Their new rate would be 34 cents per thousand if you converted that to a per capita rate at $4.29. This is a little confusing, sorry. Uh, so this would be kind of like the uh, the school aid thing where where on school aid they do a, a per uh, pupil basis, but this is just kind of a general way to do like a per capita basis, say we're going to make this equal for everybody in the state. It's, it's one way to equalize. So um, going back to what Representative Smith asked then, for example, Johnson County, in both of your examples, it looks like Johnson County's um, t- 
taxes would go up whether you use the you know the first or your second scenario does that mean that for the past several years then the state has been subsidizing Johnson County's mental health services at a higher rate than it has been subsidizing say Clinton County's mental health services uh, yes. So, okay. and then the per capita changed a, di- a little differently because Johnson County has probably had a lot of popular population growth to do to. I know North Liberty's growing, and so they'd have some growth there. But uh, yeah, they probably locked in at a lower rate in general. Okay. And so, so if we did either of these plans, and what would happen is it would. I mean, at least hypothetically, it would be fair to all the property tax-paying people across. Iowa. It would be, it would, yes, it would attempt to bring some some equity to the system, yeah, fairness. Yeah. And it wouldn't, I mean, obviously it wouldn't change the fact that maybe some counties have been getting a break from the state in the past. It would just put us all on, again, hypothetically, uh, an equal playing field. Okay, Correct. thanks. Yes. Yep. Um, so, uh, so then, uh, once again, on the the front the front side of the sheet, uh, you can see the counties that would have their property tax either increased, uh, and then on the back side, it's the counties that would have their property taxes increased or decreased, and uh, it's a difference of about seventeen million dollars to bring both sides or to equal. <clears throat> Jess, the the explanation you wrote on the side, I just want to let my members. I'll let the members may look at this a little differently. You said that the rates um, subsidized by the state, we could choose to take either one of these two proposals and subsidize those counties that have increased in property taxes. It would be that would be our only option. I, I don't think that many members here would want to go back to our caucuses, let alone our voters and ask for them to take a property tax increase. So the the idea that I'm getting from your presentation is that that would be a cost the state would, as, an additional cost the state would assume above the recommendations of the department to equalize the cost of the counties in the system. That's what we're discussing. Is that that's correct? That's correct. Yes, that's correct. Uh, Representative Heaton. Uh, just to understand... The numbers that you have here include, as far as the county's concerned, both Medicaid and non-Medicaid expenditures. Correct, yes. So when the state assumes the Medicaid and leaves the counties with non-Medicaid, things start to change, wouldn't they not? They would, yes. Uh, theoretically, there would be regions, though, and so some of that would be smoothed out, and then you'd be raising you'd be raising the same dollar amount per person in each region or per per po- population in each region. So uh, theoretically, I mean, that would all be s- equaled out. Well, if I take a look at Johnson County, and I'd say, at the present time, if I looked at their Medicaid expenditures versus their non-Medicaid expenditures in Johnson County when it might compare to other counties they might be financing a lot more Medicaid services in that county than the average county Mm -hmm. so therefore if you move it to the state 
then the impact would be favorable, more favorable to the taxpayer in Johnson County because we are leaving their levy the same. Get what I'm going? I think so, yeah. The real issue, if we're to look at our plan, is an equalization of the non-Medicaid. That's the real issue, and we don't have a chart that shows that, do we? Well, I mean, we we don't know what dollars necessarily go to pay for Medicaid versus non-Medicaid, so... We don't have data that shows what each county spends for well, we know Medicaid how much and non-Medicaid? We do, yes. Yes, we do. We well, have if that. If you took those numbers and worked us up a table showing us that, then... Yeah. We another could, column. We could, Yeah, we could work on, on something like that. Yeah, I think that's important in our discussion as we start to look at this equalization. It's sure. Looking really... In our in, in the in the department's plan, how then we would deal with the equalization? Yes, because I, I think uh, this year, uh, on from one of those DHS sheets off the top of my head, they they're spending like 149 or 147 million dollars on non-Medicaid services, so they would have 125 million dollars still in property taxes. Pay for that. Thank you. I want. Eaten both said on this, so that there was not raise in property taxes. Then we keep the same inequitable system, and the property taxpayers of Marshall County would be paying higher than uh, the property taxpayers of Dickinson County. What what would happen is, and actually, uh, I might have you flip to the next page. She there's a the there's a chart. Page. There's a, okay. a a graph. This is making the assumption that we go with the per capita. Correct. Correct. Yes. And, but you could right. you could do this for the per capita, or you could do the same thing for the mean. You could just draw the mean across the uh, the straight line as well. So, Senator, was that what you were talking about? Is going with the per capita? Because I thought you were talking about in general bringing in state dollars, which is what essentially what we've been doing. I was talking about the macro sense of bringing in somewhere along the line we have to bring in state dollars to equalize the system. And that's all. That's the only point I wanted to make with the, the two first two charts that Jess was presenting. Okay. Sorry. So, all right. So, anyway, my concern is that's what we've been doing. And um, so we still have out of discussion through the mandates on the part of the county. There may be underfunded mandates, but there have been no unfunded mandates, and that we have as much as 80% of service delivery coming uh, from state dollars to the current system. Uh, and I don't see that we would make that regard. What Representative Heaton uh, was saying about this, then um, is proposing. It sounded to me proposing that additional money in for the Medicaid services also calculate in the fact that a certain number of those dollars currently to provide those Medicaid services, that then would become the pool of money to provide the Medicaid services. Representative Heaton's question is a very good one. What's um, and then how do we equity or make that more existing dollars for 
non-Medicaid services. So as far as what's left, it would be the $125 million uh, that's being raised in property taxes. Well, the $125 million, though, okay. It'd be that plus plus the social or plus uh, the, the social services block grant, which was right. twelve million dollars. Okay. So those two pots together would be what would be left. Would be, and and that's then what the challenge for us would be: how to come up with an equitable system for that. Correct. Yeah. And then you, I mean, you can add state funding then on top of that, but those are currently that's what that's mm-hmm. what's on DHS chart right. as far as their. And then as far as uh, equalizing, so basically what the goal is, is if you look at them across the middle, we're raising that red line, $125.8 million. Currently, you know, there's counties that are uh, all the way up in the high. Uh, if you look at the purple line, all the way down to $14 uh, per thousand or per person in counties. And this is at the per capita, or per capita example. So what you would be doing is you would, uh, if you didn't want to raise anybody's property taxes, you're going to be subsidizing that bottom triangle. Uh, and But then the counties on the top triangle would have their property taxes reduced. But because you wouldn't raise anybody's property taxes, the bottom triangle would be subsidized by the state. I, I'm just saying that we've heard a lot about taxpayers first. It becomes a question of which taxpayers. Correct. Yes. So... So and so under this example, you'd still raise your 125 million dollars, and uh, theoretically, then uh, because these taxpayers at the bottom end would have more state funds filling in, they'd need less of the allowed growth pots and all those other pots that they're getting right now. So they would need less of that money, and some of that money would then go to the uh, the upper triangle to fill that in. So it would all kind of wash itself out in the end. So. Uh, in theory, the counties that are going to be subsidized would have more more money to spend than on services because they're at a lower rate, and then they're going to be subsidized up to, to the line. So they would need less than the allowed growth funding or that kind of stuff uh, under the current system, and then and that money then would go to the count the upper triangles, and the it, the higher property taxpayers would get a little more state help. So it would come come back to the front or the first sheet that I was showing you to try and equalize that first sheet to uh, the the average of sixty forty split. As and I want to bring us back to the issue here is equalizing services across the state. Doesn't mean that some people are paying more in property taxes. It means everybody's going to be paying the same rate in property taxes. We will subsidize those that are paying less or that are paying more right now, but the services will still remain the same. So it's not which taxpayer is going to be paying more, everyone's paying the same rate. Its services will be provided that low-rated counties weren't providing because their rates were lower. So it's it's not that complicated unless you get down to every county and you get into the weeds on every service. But on the on the macro sense, this is a, a, a pretty good map or, or chart. What we want to do is get to the red line so everyone's paying the same and increase the subsidy from the state to those counties that are paying too much, too little, too little to increase their services. So no one's paying. So so 
No one's paying any more than what they're paying now. Their rate will be, some will be subsidized, some will be reduced. So, we, we, I mean, that's where we're going. So now, we, you know, we're, we're going to be talking more about this, obviously, as we proceed with this legislation. But that's the general thrust. Senator Bochum. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I'd like to just make a couple observations about about Johnson County as it's been an example. And it, it's there are probably other counties that fall into this. Um, Johnson County had about $3 million uh, in property taxes in 1996 uh, going into the MHDD fund. They have about the same amount in today, in 2012. Uh, since then, there's about 30,000 more residents in Johnson County so who, who require services. And the state has been subsidizing it because we have a dollar, a dollar cap. Um, so looking forward, I mean, so we, we basically spread out that $3 million across uh, not 30,000 people, but a certain number of households that those 30,000 people live in. If you look at the chart, there are other examples that where we've seen population growth that have had the same effect where the state has actually subsidized uh, the services in those counties. So looking ahead, if we go to a levy rate, an equal levy rate or an equal per capita, um, we have more people to spread it to, and so our, our contribution locally is going to go up. And I can tell you as a taxpayer there, and I know people that care about this service, they're ready for the cap to be lifted uh, to, to equalize uh, and, and and, and take on their, more of their burden, take, take that burden away from the state uh, that the state's currently subsidizing Johnson County by letting those taxpayers pay more. I happen to think that going forward in, the, in, the idea, in an ideal world, we ought to try and equalize uh, the, the local contribution uh, by household or by taxpayer or by whether that's a levy. I, I, and I think it's a levy rate, not a, not a dollar cap. Um, I think the state continuing to subsidize some counties is not the approach that we should take, although I, you know, we, we have the number pr presented. And I'd say to Jess and people that worked on this terrific job uh, laying out these assumptions and all this data, this is really, really helpful. Um, I think we need to equalize the buy-in that we have from taxpayers and from different counties within a region uh, as we think about a regional uh, system, I think there's a lot of nervousness among local elected officials about our county's contributing X, your county's contributing Y. It's not the same. We should have more say-so than you do. Uh, and I think it would go a long way if we could, over a period of time, propose a plan that would make that contribution by if we if there if we agree there's going to be a local property tax contribution that we should propose a plan that in three or five years gets to some sort of equalized contribution uh, of property taxpayers whether it's rate or uh, whether it's the levy uh, or the per capita um, and 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 equalize the buy-in within regions uh, among various counties. So then uh, the last two pages are just a uh, chart, just to kind of 
if you this is if you want to do something like the school aid idea, and this is going to kind of uh, for the first page shows you the school aid idea and kind of what goes into school aid. And uh, so on the left side, you have your uniform levy of five hundred and forty dollars uh, or five dollars and forty cents per thousand. Um, and then you have the state aid that, that um, fills in on top of that. And then beyond that, you have the additional property tax to the third block. So what that means for uh, different uh, districts is, you know, some districts are property rich and some are property poor. So that uniform levy will raise less or more per person or per pupil. Um, and then the state aid fills in up to the 87.5%. And then uh, everybody then is required to lay, re- levy the same amount above that 87.5% to get up to uh, 100%. So if you turn over to the next side, this is uh, what it could look like, you know, f- on a, uh, for the MHDD uh, group. You could do a uniform levy at, you know, whatever per thousand, um, in a county, or, or you can do it in a region if you want to do it regionally. Um, it's, it's another option. The state appropriation could fill in on top of that, and then you'd have the, uh, I don't know if you want a supplemental, I know that, or a core uh, plus levy uh, that could be funded by the counties or state. I know that was talked about, uh, so I just put that in as another block. So, say for example, we wanted to, to levy uh, $100 per person, or we wanted to raise $100 per person, um, uh, a population. So um, in a property-rich county, they might be able to levy $67 per person uh, because of the, they have higher property values. In a property-poor county, it might only be $33 per person. And then the state would come in, and they would fill in up to that $100 mark. And then if there was a supplemental or levy or a core plus, then that would be on top of that. So school aid has, like, the pebble levies and all those other – I don't know what they all are, but – but they have all these other levies on top, and you could do something like that or you, whatever you want to do. I mean, there's a lot of options. Jess, um, I, I know that any time we start talking about a funding formula that gets as complicated as the education funding formula that we have, uh, it becomes... Uh, confusing, but the one thing this does do is um, it does equalize the account, the rich and the poor county evaluation component, which all the others don't. I mean, they do in some way, but not as directly as this one does. It's a little easier, I think, in certain counties, especially if your people are going to get hit with a higher rate. I think to go with the second rather than the first. I, I don't know. I have to ask my county what they think. So, are there are there other questions about sort of what Jess has gone through? So kind of hitchhiking on what Representative Miller said. So the second way would be using some sort of general population or per capita approach as a, as a target. So back on that, that very dense sheet of, of writing stuff on page two, these are just some more assumptions and issues that you'd have to think about if you're going to take that kind of approach. So Let's say you did the general population and sort of the idea has been that same thing with regions is that 
if you had a greater number of people, you can average the costs over and 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 kind of smooth out those those expensive and and lower cost cases together. So the but the first item just says one of the issues that's come up in the in the current system, which does use population a little bit for some of the for some of the state funding side of it, is that you have the census every ten years. There's your snapshot. What do you do about population changes during that ten year period? Um, the the current population survey that the that the census issues does tend to pick up the major metropolitan area population shifts. There's there's estimates that are made about those, but you still have the fact that the it it doesn't really reflect maybe cases moving around that may be a very high need case or a low need case. You still might have to have some sort of feature that that adjusts for that. Number two, I guess it's just that whole general distribution about population. The, the three is is something that and and that was at our last discussion. Members higher and lower degrees of interest in trying to. to watch again. I'm sorry. I got I to gotta remember that. I have I have a habit of moving my hands when I talk as as well, and that darn watch is uh, interfering. But the third one is is that you have that core plus. What kind of way would the committee want to deal with, or legislators want to deal with? That if you've got the core, what about your local area, and they want to do more? And uh, you'd have to look at that kind of thing. If you had that interest as well, and then the the fourth one is is if you use a per capita amount, would you make that uniform for the region, or would you do it county by county? Is is another issue that you might need to think about. And I'm sure that if you got the world's leading expert, which would be more people, you're gonna you're gonna have more ideas uh, to deal with with any one of these. So. That, that sort of laid out. We asked uh, Michael Duster. Michael Duster, from the drafting standpoint, works on property tax issues for for the legal services division. And then Jeff Robinson is here, and he, he looks at the overall revenue side for the state, but also everybody else. He gets hauled into other discussions. Make sure we have the resources to answer any questions if, if you're able to decide about these issues at, at this point. Thank you, John. Um, I would like to have the panel stay. Um, I, I'm going to now move into the agenda item where we are going to start having discussions and making some decisions. So from here on out, uh, the process that Representative Schulte and I would like to work off of is that on financing and regionalization, we work off of the December 9th report plus the information that was transmitted today. Our first item would be financing, see how far we can go on that, and then move to regionalization. After we get through some of those uh, decisions uh, in the packet, we were also provided over the, uh, the weekend, and John has additional copies for committee members, on the other decisions that we all responded to over the week uh, in the um, 
We'll get you a copy, uh, Representative Heaton. But it was it was mailed emailed to everybody, and it was what we were responding to as committee members. If we approved, disapproved, or wanted to have more discussions, so we have a list of these items that we have already looked at. These are the less, not the less, not the the, the least controversial, but these are the recommenda- other recommendations that the work group um, has made to the committee. So. I'd like to entertain if there's any anybody of the committee who would like to make a motion or dis- decision, uh, start a decision on the financing of the uh, of the new system. Okay, so we're going to be moving toward the discussion of the financing. Are there any members that have an opening statement or a uh, recommendation? on page 10 of the report, but also included, we should be considering the information just presented to us by the LSA staff on the assumptions we want to make for the financing mechanism. Again, I think there are two issues. One, do we want to continue to have local contributing efforts? And I think that's the assumption of the department. I don't think that is the assumption of the department. We've discussed that between us um, informally uh, as an interim committee and as members of this committee. So I think there would be a, a, a at least a motion to say we want to continue the local contributing effort. That's number one. Moved and second. Is there a discussion? Um, I am good with uh, local, local match continuing today, but I'm not sure that I'm... Con- okay with that in perpetuity. Um, I believe you need the $125 million today to continue to move forward, but I don't believe our caucus is on board with leaving it there forever. And so I want to consider additional conversation when we move down further about how the how we might be able to replace that property tax for all of those conversations we just finished having with Jess. I don't know how you get to a fair and equitable system if you've got property taxes in the mix with everybody having different levies, and I still have a serious concern about that. And my caucus is not interested in putting back an inequitable system, which is why we voted it out in the first place. And if I understood Senator Bolcom's last statement, we would be raising property taxes on anybody that was below that line, and my caucus is not there. And so I, I have a caveat to, yes, local match needs to be there today, but not for forever. I think we might be able to get to some of the other concerns as we roll out some of these motions today. Let's see how far we can go. Are there any other questions? Restate the motion uh, made by Senator Bocum and seconded by Representative Heaton that the uh, new uh, redesign system continue to uh, have local contributing effort um, to its uh, to the system. Well, I'm going to let me make a motion. I I would move. Yeah. We'll, we'll have Senator Bocum restate his motion, and then Representative Heaton can accept it or not, and we'll we'll play a little ping pong here. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I would move that we sustain the current uh, contribution that there be local contribution and it not be less than what it, the current 125 million dollars. Or 100, whatever in change, whatever that is, 120, 
that is currently in the system. So essentially uh, maintain local support at least in the amount of $125 million. And that's it. Not not the current system so much. That maybe is a conversation for a few minutes from now. But local contribution at least $125 million. Senator, Senator Bocum, I'm to understand then with your motion, it is it is it's your thought that we we begin we proceed from here then at the county's contribution may be maintained at that at their current level, correct? And um, leaving, I, I guess, it interpreting your motion. Um, in future years, if we seek to make adjustment and address the issue of property taxes, um, your, your motion does not talk about perpetuity or whatever. It, it is open to adjustment in the years in the years forward, right? Okay, so I I would I would second your motion uh, as an initial point of of, of beginning. Right. Uh, Representative Wolf. Discussion of the item. Okay, the good. Um, so, Senator Bolcom, then I, I understand that we're talking about keeping the county contributions, the entire pot, at about $125 million. But then are you saying that we consider what could arguably be seen as an inequitable um way of, of collecting that in that we would just maintain the fact that currently people, and, and I don't mean to keep picking on Johnson County, it's just the one that jumped out at me when I looked at this, the people in Johnson County pay less, pay a lower percentage of property taxes towards that $125 million than, say, people in Clinton, or would your proposal contemplate Adjusting that along the ways of the along the lines of of what we see, where Johnson County property owners would have their taxes increase. Um, my motion is simply to say that the principle—it's—it's it's more of a principle statement about there should be a local contribution, should be property taxes, and we shouldn't we shouldn't make that contribution one dollar less than it is today. How how and, and that's it. It's it's the principal local contribution, and I throw the dollar amount in just to spice it up a little bit. The uh, the question of e equity and all those other issues, I think, are two or three motions away. Okay, because I thought when Representative Heaton kind of restated it, I got the impression that he was saying that we wouldn't be raising or lowering anybody's property taxes, but we're not there yet, right? Okay, thank you. Thank, thank you, Chair, Mr. Chair. Um, my concern with the dollar figure, Senator Bolcom, is that in both scenarios, we will have counties that um, are either raising their property taxes or lowering to meet that 125. And in the examples we've been given, um, such as the per capita levy rate illustration, the state does have have to subsidize $17.3 million. 
of that. So we're not at that 125 level that the local governments would be contributing. We're we're at 108 million, for example. So throwing a, a dollar figure in there, somehow the local governments are going to have to come up with that and not be subsidized by the state. So I guess I understand that the local communities need to contribute, um, but setting a dollar figure in there to start with maybe uh, getting a little getting the cart ahead of the horse. If I could repeat, I think what Senator Bochum said is that we're not talking about how it's going to be collected. We're saying that the money is going, that's the target that we're not going to drop below. I think we have a second motion and a third motion that will go directly toward ensuring that no property taxes are increased. So the first one, as Senator Bochum said, was a, a statement of principle that there's contributing local effort and that it won't drop below the existing dollar amount now. We have to have faith that there will be a second and third amendment, or not amendment, but a motion that will start so, you know, clearly identifying that I don't think anybody on the committee wants increases in property taxes. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. We're seeing no other uh, um, discussion. All in favor, say aye. Good. First motion. Second motion. If I could be so bold to kind of lead this, that uh, the committee feels that one, uh, no local property taxes will be uh, increased, and that uh, any uh, and to reach equity, uh, the state would devise a system to, to subsidize uh, those counties. Is there a motion to that effect? Um, we want to caucus. Can we caucus? I know that's horrible. Representative Smith would like to caucus. Hey, if, if we want to caucus, certainly. Anybody who wishes... To, to, to make the request to caucus, um, we uh, if if someone in LSA could tell us uh, uh, two rooms that are available, then we can do that. We're not going to empty out this room for sure. Um, could I, Senator? Hatch. Sure. Yes, Senator Hatch. Yes, Senator Bowman. Could 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 we uh, maybe table this financial conversation and move into something a little less controversial, and people could caucus at lunch? So we don't break the room up and maybe move to regionalization or some other. That'd be good. I, I think I think trying to get some things we agree on done here would be great, and maybe leave this till after lunch. Just a suggestion. Um, let me sig also. Yes, that's a good suggestion. If 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 our members wouldn't mind, we we could do that. Um, I want to. Representative Miller, would that be satisfactory to you? And Representative Smith. Body break has probably more consensus and caucus, and so we, we'll wait for another 20 minutes to a half hour. I, I do want to say that first motion we made was pretty significant because I don't think people thought we would be at that point today. So um, anything beyond that, I, I believe, will uh, uh, needs to have more thoughtful 
uh, deliberation. So we will ask the caucuses during lunch to break. Uh, now we'll go to, as Senator Bochum said, a, a, a less than controversial effort, uh, regionalization. That is on page... Actions on several pages. Page five, management structure, regional administration. I can um, I can go to page six. Let's see. Okay, page five. Establishing regional entities. Who would like to make a motion? Page five says Thank, thank you, Madam Chair. Madam Chair, Mr. Chairman, I wonder if uh, a, an easier working document at this point to go through regionalization might be the the spreadsheet we got where we check the boxes because it has the details around population, number of counties, travel time. It's it's a little bit more specific. I mean, unless you're just looking for a motion that says no, there, we're well, going to have regions. Exactly that we have on page six. The first bold, uh, toward the top of the page, the department recommends. There are two recommendations on that page. There are two recommendations on page 7 relating to the um, regionalization and one recommendation on page 8 on the top. So those those are the three recommendations, I, or the five recommendations I was looking at from this report. The um, Senate file 525 said that we would have regions, and I think the the um, the additional worksheet that we had, I think, does what Senator Bochum says goes into more detail about the target population, the size. Um, but I think the I think the, the the December 9th report gets us to there. You could, sure, make any motion you want. I mean, this well, is I think the, these are just kind of recommendations. So any member of the committee could take. I'm just identifying two resources for you to make a motion. Well, okay. Uh, um, are you still on the floor? Yeah. yeah let me just say, I, in terms of making, I'm ready to make a motion. There are there are 30 different things here that have been identified that would 
uh, impact regions from, you know, financial management to who's responsible for what to criteria for formation to governance, and it's kind of a, it's a list. You're right. This does provide a narrative of all that, but I wonder if it would be easier to work off the list to say because it has numbers by it. Has numbered things that we could probably more easily track um, what we're what we're going to make emotions on. I think we could actually um, agree on if you wanted the department recommendations motions on the five department recommendations, we could take them one at a time, and I think we would be okay with that. And then we can go, uh, then we can clarify that more with Senator Bochum's request to go through the, Correct. the worksheets. So I would start with the first one, which is the department recommends that there be a, a definition of what is included in the legislative proposed 5% administrative cap, depending on the definition as well as what the 5% is based on. 5% may not be enough to perform all the necessary administrative functions. Do you have that one? It's on page six. We agree to that. Okay. Is that a motion? That's a motion. Is there a second? Second by Representative Smith. Discussion on the motion. Senator Bochum. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. What's the 5% based on? What, what kind of money is 5%? How many staff will a regional entity have? What will that cost? And is there any relationship between that and 5%? How did we come up with 5%? If I could just uh, go back to the motion. The motion does contemplate that it's not defined yet. It needs to be defined. Um, and that it does acknowledge that the 5% may be too high or too low. And that that's contemplated that that will be further ex explained. Uh, the 5% uh, was in the legislation that we passed last year. And we got that to, we, we, we came to that because there was discussion that it's actually below 5% if you include, on CPCs, if you include Medicaid. If, if you t exclude Medicaid, now that we are going to do that in our proposal, that administrative amount may be higher. And so I think the department was contemplating, well, we didn't know this, but with the contemplation that Medicaid is going to be picked up by the state, 5% may be too, too low. And then there's the issue of definition. For example, a caseworker would not be an administrative cost. That is a service cost. But the director or the fiscal person of the new region would be an administrative cost. So those definitions have to be worked out. And that's, uh, Director Palmer, am I correct in those assumptions? Does that answer your question? Yes, Mr. Chairman, it does. It occurs to me that we haven't we haven't agreed that we're creating regions yet and we're determining their administrative fees in terms of the structure of regions. We're kind of into the weeds immediately on this. So I assume we're with this motion, we're taking on the agreement that we are all in agreement that regions are. There's, there are a number of other parameters, target population and how many counties make up a region and... Well, the, the um, legislation, 525, uh, did state that they would be regions. So we are, 
unless we're making a motion to reverse last year's vote, we have agreed already to have regions in the new system. That's why it's not in here as a recommendation. So with with these recommendations that Representative Miller um, and, and Representative Smith have have made and seconded, there is a <laughs> there is an acknowledgement that we will have regions. Uh, Representative Heaton and Senator Reagan. Uh, questions, uh, Senator Hatch. Uh, when you just previously you were starting to explain um, uh, kind of the makeup of what the five percent would apply to. Um, did you say that the CPCs would be part of the five percent? Um, the CPCs are, along with the uh, legislation last year, they're repealed. There are no CPCs as of July first, twenty thirteen. I think the administrative functions of the CPCs will be consolidated, and those functions, and the more we get into the details, will be examined more. So, okay, let me rephrase it then. The cost of local access, okay, will that be administrative cost? If it's a service delivery cost, no. If it is, and, and I think that's where you get in the definition of outreach. Outreach may be a service cost, not an administrative cost. Uh, these are, a lot of these issues, the Representative Heaton, are defined by both state administrative rules and also federal indirect administrative rules. So we, that's really into the, that's into the, the discussion later. Bringing up. Okay, thank you. If you moved, to, uh, if you created a region in, in, in out in western Iowa, and wanted to have uh, a local access, the cost of local access would be proportionally higher, perhaps, than it would be in a more populated area. Well, the point I'm trying to make is, is that. The 5% then, because if you have a local access, you're dealing with both Medicaid and non-Medicaid services. Even though the state is paying for the Medicaid services, the access point is at the local level, and therefore shouldn't the 5% be determined off the combination of both Medicaid and non-Medicaid? I think what is good about this motion is that it allows that to happen. The way I would define transportation costs is the coordination of transportation as an administrative cost, the access and the number of buses would be a, a service cost. So it would not affect, it should not affect the administrative cost anymore because every region probably will have one coordinator. It, it just is that, that the cost of transportation will be higher in the rural areas. That will be a service cost, not an administrative cost. But this... This motion that the department is recommending allows us to increase the cost beyond 5% and to define it, which is something we shouldn't do now anyway. Representative uh, Senator Reagan. Mine goes with um, the access issue and the cost. Now, case management, 
a lot of those services in these small rural areas are, are really going to be impacted by that 5%. So what you're saying, Jack, is that this is really open for discussion on the definition because some of those things that have been provided out there now would be considered administrative costs that will still have to be uh, part of what's happening because just even if you have the regional, you're still going to have to have that access. And I think the, the amendment says depending on the definition as well as what 5% is based on, 5% may not be enough to perform. So it's very clear that once you define what's under the administration, then you'll know whether or not it's higher or lower. And it, the motion allows, at least right now, somebody to uh, to to uh, to increase those for locational issues. And so, as a committee, we'll still have some opportunity to discuss that. That's what I'm really trying to. So, as a, absolutely, I mean, we're tr- remember we're trying to get legislation. That's going to be the basis. We will, as legislators, once it's introduced and it goes to, I hope, a joint committee, we'll be going. This this will allow us right now to identify some of those areas that need further de- defining. So we would hope that the department will come back with definitions so that people feel that that it's appropriate. We could also change that five percent level if we feel more comfortable with it. Okay. So. I just want to let you know, like in Lynn County, a lot of the Medicaid administrative costs are in the cost reporting done on the Medicaid side. So when they look at actually just flat administration, they claim 1.5% in administration. But that does not include Medicaid because all of that money is over. So it really is very much so going to depend on this definition because if we include, if we're talking 5% of just non-Medicaid, that's one thing. If you're talking 5% of Medicaid, that could be a lot of money for some and not for others. And so I think by putting this in the way this is, we would come back and revisit based on more information as we move forward. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to clarify a little bit about what I thought and think that I uh, provided with the second on this and uh, looking over Senate File 525. Um, but uh, as I, I, it's not my intent. I think people know that I've never been terribly enamored or uh, have had some concerns about the regional concept. So uh, it's not my intent not to have a discussion, as Senator Bolcom um, pointed out, about regionals and uh, making the assumption that uh, we're automatically going to go to that. Um, and uh, Senator Hatch talked about the repeal of this. I'm looking at the language. I'm not. I, I think we still have some uh, areas to discuss regarding the regions, and want to again um, talk about that. I uh, propose that this area be called administration and scope, and there are several things that I can agree to um, and don't have to discuss if we're uh, thinking in terms of administration and scope of the program. What I think we've heard over and over again uh, in different meetings, uh, we've heard a number of numbers from the counties on administration of these programs. All of those numbers, in my memory, are less than 5%. And so what I intended with making the second to this motion is that we put a cap that we would not exceed that amount um, because existing service delivery with um, all of the efforts that are done on the Medicaid portion um, being provided that way, um, I don't see that we can go above what we're currently spending for the system administration now. Senator Bocum. 
Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, I'm wondering about the process, uh, about how we're going to get through all this. Um, we had, we, we all reviewed a checklist of all the items. Uh, there's like 35 of them dealing with regionalization. We're on number 20. We've jumped to number 25. And I just wonder if we could maybe, uh, I, and I think there's a lot of agreement from interim committee members on, on this. And I wonder if we could uh, maybe break for lunch early here and uh, regroup on the process a little bit in terms of how we can expedite getting through these uh, 15 pages of things that we've already, as a group, kind of independently worked through, find out where they're, where their agreement and where we really need to spend time is on uh, where we don't agree. Okay, it is uh, uh, the chairs, if that's, if that's a recommendation, what... The process is I don't think there was confusion. There are five recommendations in the November 9th report. Um, Representative Miller said that she and her caucus had no problems with those. Um, and so it was the intent to get through all five of those before we got to the list and work our way down this list. I don't. I think it's important that we work off the documents that have been publicly disseminated. And as far as I know, this list has not been publicly disseminated. So the public is only looking at this document of December 9th. And I would like to go through those five recommendations that the department has um, first and then go to the other lists that are more detailed. I mean, that's the way it was designed. The public does not have the detailed list, so I feel a little uncomfortable working off the detailed list, Senator Bochum. But if, if the committee wants to take an early break for lunch and go through um, both the December report and the list and feel a little bit more comfortable in what direction you want to come back, then, um, Representative Schulte, uh, what, what would your thoughts be on that? Well, if you'd like to go to lunch, I suppose we can do so. Here's the trick with lunch. Over the lunch hour, you will have a choir that will won't be done until it's done. And so it may be a difficult challenge to hear. So we might want to move. Did we agree to the first one? Um, Senator Bochum, um, unless you want to make a motion to table the motion that uh, we're on, I will proceed with a, a vote on more discussion on that motion and then a vote. Chairman, the, uh, the, well, have a spreadsheet with all the recommendations. The recommendations are all contained in the report, so members of the public actually have everything that we have. Um, I'm fine moving ahead with uh, what would be number 24, 25 on, on the list we have. If, if you're talking about on page 6, the recommendation of a 5% administrative cap, if that's all we're voting on, I'm happy to vote on that right now. Are there any of the discussions on the motion on the floor? 
the, the motion as read is on page six, the third paragraph down. That is the motion. The department recommends that there is a definition of what is included in the legislatively proposed 5% administrative cap. Depending on the definition as well as what the 5% is based on, 5% may not be enough to perform all of the necessary administrative functions. That is the, that is the motion. Further discussion? All in favor say aye. Opposed? Why don't we, um, John? You have uh, there. There are two rooms available. Why don't we take a, uh, yeah, men's room and a women's room? No, we are. We are asking for a uh, two a two rooms separate for caucus, uh, the Democratic caucus, Republican caucus. It will be a working caucus, so members can bring um, their information to those rooms, and. Um, if um, a puff of white smoke goes up, then w we know that we're invited to the other caucus if necessary. Uh, John, can you tell us where we are? We, uh, we, we pinched all the chairs from the one meeting room, so we're going to have to get some chairs back into the, to the one. But it, it's directly across the, the hallway here. Um, there's a room on the left that's that's our director's office. There's a room on the right that's uh, currently occupied by Mary Shipman and where we did the redistricting um, effort this last year. So you can decide which how you want to pick between those two rooms. But one of them we have to get additional chairs into. Did you tell the public? Everyone, we'll be taking a lunch break and we'll be reconvening at 1 p.m. 1 p.m., everyone. Thank you.
Hello, everyone. We are ready to get back together. We apologize for the delay. I hope if you are in the crowd, you've had the opportunity to get a Christmas cookie or two. They're offered right up front. We're not the only people that get to eat cookies. All right, so thank you so much for lunch. And we're going to get back together starting talking about recommendations. So I'm going to turn the chair back over to Senator Hatch. Thank you, and good afternoon. Um, to bring everybody up to date, the uh, two caucuses met, and uh, we did significantly better once we had food. Um, so we were, believe me, it's uh, to your benefit that we, we did that. Um, after the two caucuses uh, met privately, we, we, we met, met uh, kind of informally in the middle and decided that the best way to proceed was to go through the Department of Human Services proposal um, recommendations of December 9th, go through those um, point by point um, as well as with the uh, bolded recommend, recommended um, provision. Uh, then we can, um, then Re Representative Schulte and I will then open it up to the floor uh, for any member to add any other recommendation, um, either that was uh, not part of the report that came out of the work group or from their own experience. So with that, um, we were last on page six. And um, Susan, we're going to start with uh, page five at the bottom. And instead of reading these all individually, I'm just going to ask uh, the members of the committee uh, to take a look at these and for someone to make a recommendation either uh, individually or as a or grouping them for uh, discussion. Often hoping it's not mine. Um, well, I think, uh, first of all, I think it's important for us to keep in mind what we're doing here today, which is giving LSA direction on uh, drafting legislation and that this is not the final word, that the entire legislative process continues forward when we convene in January. And I think as we look at the uh, department's recommendations, there continues to be um, a number of things that we have to work out uh, in further detail. There also are things that some of us still uh, have concerns. Probably all of us are not ready to go lockstep. But I think that this is a good place for us to begin. So I would move that we take the recommendations from the department and what they've enumerated uh, to clarify further is legislation. You're recommending moving the entire report. Okay. Is there a second to a that? A second. All right. Now we're going to go with discussion. I guess that food was better than I thought. Um, 
Let's have a general discussion. Let's have a discussion. Um, a member can point to any one of the recommendations for further clarification. Um, Senator Bolcom. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, that was, this is a big motion. Um, let me let me start with make. Uh, the the regional I about region the regional work group proposal on a couple things and just uh, just ask a question and, and express a concern. Um, the, I think the And uh, I'm, I'm I'm a little concerned about that, and and, and here's why. I'm I'm interested in. In County Polk, Dubuque, cities, Western. I'm concerned that have regions that are simply three counties will not only have more than maybe 15 regions, or more more regions. I think less regions is is preferable, but that we could have urban counties just simply going together with one or county they might have the capacity actually to do six or seven counties. So I worry about that because I think the, the 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 real reason to do regionalization is to build on the capacity of places where we have providers. We're not going to go out and create a bunch of new providers. We're going to build the capacity, in my mind, of existing providers to do more in a greater regional or a greater geographic region. So when I think of, uh, you know, Lynn and Johnson and maybe one or two other counties, I think Lynn and Johnson can do more than that. When I think about Polk County, they'd meet the requirement by just going together with you know two other small counties by based on the population so I just like to get people's thinking on this question whether or not and I'm happy to pres go ahead with the three counties today there's opportunity to maybe mend this in the future but I'd be interested in the thinking because I do know there's a lot of work put into this and this was discussed ad nauseum uh, or, you know, I'm, I'm sure it got a lot of conversation. I, I attended one of, I don't know how many times the regional group met. I only went to one of those meetings. Uh, at any rate, that, that would be one concern. Um, then the, the other is the, the timeline is quite aggressive, I think. Um, we're going we're gonna to have counties uh, by November of next year, 11 months from now, determine what their region is. And they could start that in January, apparently, according to this. They could start talking in some – and today. Um, but I'm worried that we – that in order to make this work well, um, that we have good technical support. Because as I talk to my supervisors and talk to people about this, I don't think everybody has a good idea about what – has a vision in their head what this is going to look like. Uh, how many – how many people are going to staff a region? What are their responsibilities? What's the job descriptions? Um, how's the governing? You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of details, and uh, I'm I'm concerned that there's no real plan at this point. Or I think there's discussion about it, but if we are going to meet this timeline, um, 
what kind of technical assistance is going to be available to people throughout Iowa as they have, you know, the hundred questions about what are we, because I can see five or six counties getting together trying to decide something and not really understanding completely what they're trying to decide because uh, I think people are looking for details. So th- that would be so. So my concerns relate to time, you know, the aggressive timeline. And then I guess the, the third thing under regionalization is the whole governance question and uh, one county, one vote or some variation on that. So those would be uh, three, three things on the regionalization uh, that I'd like m- some more feedback or discussion on. Representative Smith. Well, I just wanted to comment. You, uh, Senator Volcom, talked about three or wanting when they could go higher. Um, I also think there needs to be a discussion about going lower with that. The whole area, as I've mentioned before, about regions um, should, in my mind, should be administration and scope. How do we best deliver these systems? So I would concur with you that I think a lot more discussion needs to occur in this area. But to move us forward and to be in the uh, the fact that the work group did actually go through all of those kinds of thoughts, processes, and came up with this proposal to be our working document that we work off of and try to hone into a better a better uh, consensus. Uh, I I think to move the process forward. Um, we all have questions on, on our side again about the regionalization also, and I think it just needs to be an ongoing discussion. All of, I followed the regional work group the whole time, and so in this meeting, this got two or three meeting conversations about it, and basically for scope, the way the 200 to 700,000 people came about is about right around 300,000 is where you get the best scope of scale as far as getting the most bang for your buck of number of people. But they didn't want the number to stay at 300,000 because of the very rural communities, especially we have in southern Iowa, and then we're concerned about how just large that region would be. So they moved it back down to 200,000 so that it wouldn't be you know, a, a massively large region. Then they put the upper limit on it so that it couldn't become a statewide region uh, if without some sort of movement or discussion point on that. So it would kind of be a trigger as to not get too large. So then the discussion about how did you get to three counties. Well, three counties, at the time when we were talking about governance boards, would have supervisors only, one per, re- per county. And below three, it would be very difficult to vote on a governance board. And so they decided three would be good, and it also then prevented single counties from staying among themselves and just making an empire among themselves. And there were there were some concerns that some of the bigger counties would not want to help anybody and just stay a region among themselves. So going down to three would make it um, a way that they could vote, and then yet um, not be. If you put Polk in the situation, if you put Polk with a couple of counties beside them, they're already really close to that seven hundred person, seven hundred thousand cap that was put on the upper limit and so that's why it came to three but I agree with you I think I think it sort of leads lends toward where the original legislation started a year ago about having it with a populated area and people didn't want to have regions just based on that so we went a little more flexible but you're correct I think it's very flexible but I think the main points that they wanted us to get out of it was not to have single counties and not to have just so such vast regions that you couldn't get from point A to point B 
without access to services was the general gist behind it. But I know it wasn't intent on making it in stone for those numbers. And I'd actually prefer to have um, the department to have some sort of a waiver capacity so that they could waive it to best interest based on and make these more based on function, like Representative Smith said, that if you if you looked in Senate file 525, we said we wanted acute hospitalization, we wanted all these various levels of care in your core services, and so I think that regional number should be determined on what's available in the region more so than how many people per se, especially in a rural and urban type setting. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, I just want to make some comments about the regionalization and other parts of the document. Um, I guess I would say I concur with Senator Bolcom on there looking at the time frame of it. I do think it's awfully aggressive, and will everything be in place? Everybody know what they're, what they're doing, and just we want to make sure that we've got the infrastructure in place. Uh, uh, and so consumers know and families know, how am I accessing those services? Where do I go? Do I have to go to another county? Is it within my own county? It's just very unclear at this time without having the more specific legislation up. Um, along with that, um, just since Senator or Representative Smith's motion was for the entire document, um, I look at the workforce development. I like the idea that we're put, putting some more concentrated effort on that. Um, I almost wonder though if that needs to be a little bit more of an aggressive timeline there because you can say that people are going to have access to services in various regions, but if we don't have the workforce there to deliver it, they really are not going to have the access. So um, I think whatever we can that up would be uh, something I'd like to like to see. Um, I talked about this earlier, but the, the recommendation, how I read it, I think it just encourages morning when we talked that we were just that we want that want to propose that that or that that is part of this proposal as well um, and then um, additionally um, and maybe this is probably to his current current proposal, I guess I should stop outside of that but an addendum I'd like to add to his proposal And then um, just one other clarity question I had is I know we talked about, I think it was in the last interim meeting, was to have the terminology change from mental retardation to um, uh, intellectual disability. And I don't believe that is part of the report here, but it's something that we had consensus on. And so I just wanted to make sure that was also part of that was not forgotten. Addendum later. Thank you. Um, just just for my clarification, because I have a forum tomorrow back in Clinton, I, I have at least one document that seems to say that the department's recommendation is one county, one vote. Is I have that correct? Okay. That's all I need to know. Thanks. I'd like to bring up, follow up a comment on that. Um, I attended uh, several of the regional workshops. That question of voting in the governance uh, process was discussed twice at some length. It was recommended that we have one county, one vote in the regions, uh, but both 
supervisor representatives, um, Bob Ronell, Republican from Polk County, and Linda Langston, um, Democrat from Lynn County, both acknowledge that her colleagues probably would not um, feel comfortable with that. Uh, I've talked to our county's uh, supervisors in Polk County, and, and they do not. Um, and I think there are alternatives that would safeguard the one county, one vote uh, mechanism. Um, and, and at the same time, allow counties a weighted vote uh, upon declaration of any of the county members. And, and let me give the committee and the audience an example. In, in Metropolitan Polk County, Dallas County, we have a Metropolitan Planning Organizations, MPO. The MPO has been organized for 25 years, has 42 members. It organizes and plans for transportation in Polk County and Metropolitan Des Moines. In the 25 years, um, the city of Des Moines has used its weighted vote once. And so this is a kind of system in which you are forced to gear toward consensus. And yet at the same time it recognizes that in any one metropolitan area, uh, especially when you talk about taxpayers and taxpayers' dollars, that the elected officials, the lowest level, uh, your city councils, uh, must have some sort of ability to protect that base. And so during the legislative review of this, um, I will be presenting a recommendation that follows the same model of the Metropolitan Planning Organization here in Polk County that allows a region, uh, when they organize during the 28E uh, process, uh, to, to uh, institute a weighted vote under the conditions that they uh, have or will identify. It will not be required uh, of every region, but those, those that want to include it in their uh, 28E agreement. Another issue that I want to bring up uh, is the advisory boards. Um, Chuck, is, did your report uh, speak toward uh, an advisory board at all? <coughs> what we spoke to was a clear separation between those issues that are tax-related and non-tax-related. We left it open for the regional governance body to bring on uh, providers if they chose to or consumers, but that, uh, that only the supervisors would be voting on the clearly tax-related issues. So we tried to separate functions. Uh, obviously, the advisory board, the provider or consumer, is uh, very much at use in many of the counties right now. And I think I know Johnson is very satisfied uh, with what they do in their county. So if they're not going to be at the table, then I certainly think you want a strong advisory uh, involvement of providers and consumers.
Um, one of the concerns that I have is the um, uh, the need for uh, um, a clear definition of conflict-free case management and what might be what what would have to be necessary to comply with that requirement. Um, another point um, that I'd like to work with is there's sometimes friction between the, the governing body and the case management and the consumers usually may be caught in the middle and uh, I would like to make sure that there is an appeal process in place that will be totally independent from the governing body uh, so that uh, if there is a challenge to the plan put out by the case manager that there is an appeal process whereby they can go to without um, conflict of interest in the issue. There's two questions here, one on the uh, conflict-free case management and one on um, the appeals process. And I think we need to separate those out a little bit. Remember that targeted case management in Iowa is a Medicaid service and it exists under Medicaid rules. Medi and particularly for Medicaid rules related to the home and community-based waivers, which is one of the main reasons that you do targeted case management, although you have other reasons, but it is part of that. And the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Service that oversee Medicaid at the state level um, do expect states to make sure that case managers when they're working with consumers and families to develop individual plans and do person-centered planning, etc., are free from influences that might affect their judgment. And the primary issue that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services have is that those case managers not work for the same provider that's going to be delivering the services. So that what you what the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services want is to make sure that a large multi-service provider doesn't keep families and consumers captive within their own provider agency by having case managers write service plans that only affect that only allow services within that agency. That's the primary issue of conflict of interest. There's also um, there are new definitions coming out of Medicaid, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, around the conflict-free conflict case management, which codify that. Um, and I believe the, if you go back to the original TAC report, you'll find buried in an appendix way near the back, there's a current federal definition of conflict-free case management. My suspicion is that, and I don't know this for sure, but from what I know about the way you all deliver targeted case management in Iowa, probably 95% of what you're doing now already meets that standard. So you would not require a major change in, in how that's done. There's, there may be some a few places where there's issues where the case managers work for counties that also are direct providers of service. There are ways then to establish a firewall, and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services actually defines the term firewall um, so that case managers are not... Uh, doing what they call self-dealing in terms of just referring to um, 
services that are also under the same umbrella. So I don't, I actually don't think, and I know there's been a lot of discussion of this in Iowa, I do not believe the, tar- the requirements for conflict-free case management would have a major impact across your system, and it may have some impact in terms of, of how, case, how target case management is designated. Remember that Senate File 525 makes one of the functions of regions the function to designate targeted case management. Regions may need, in some cases, to designate a targeted case management source for certain people that's outside of another place so that they, a person, a consumer can get an independent case manager. Uh, and But that doesn't. there's going to be multiple sources of case management within any region. Uh, so they should be able to do that without much difficulty. Does that address your first question? Yeah. Okay. In terms of the second question with regard to appeals, it seems to me, and I think I, I'm tracking what's in the DHS report, anybody who's on Medicaid, so this would deal with targeted case management, anybody who's on Medicaid automatically has a right to appeal under Medicaid. And there's nothing in your statute or anything else that influences that. That's, that's already there. The more critical question, it seems, is for people who are not on Medicaid, making sure that they have equivalent rights to appeal when it's an issue of a denial of eligibility of service or a denial of a certain type of service, um, a change of provider, or other kinds of things that, that consumers and families have a right to appeal that. And, and what is that you use the administrative law judge process that's already in statute, that's already in place, and just to have that appeals within the region so that there would be an automatic right to appeal and it would be totally independent of the governing board and the, and the um, targeted case manager delivery system in that particular region. Just to carry on a little bit further on the case management uh, to Director Palmer, um, there's been a lot of criticism about the caseload on some of the case management, the DHS case managers, um, sometimes up to 200 cases per case manager. Is there anything in our plan that's going to work with that issue? Region is going to want to look at uh, who's going to do case management and also uh, may have some uh, ideas about what the size of the caseloads. The DHS may not be identified. They may not stay in the case management business. I think uh, one of the things that we do want to do, and I've talked about this before, is look at the whole area of case management, uh, look at uh, the standards, look at who's doing it, look at uh, the training, look at much greater consistency across the, the state and how it's done. Uh, and that would even take us into, do we continue with all the same waivers or do we collapse some? So there's, I think, a lot to be looked at in that area. Uh, but the recommendation that you have had is that the region decides uh, who will do it. I think we just need to do more looking at how it is being done. With our targeted case management, we, we have by code limited that to 45, 45 on the caseload. Uh, do you think that perhaps we need to set up uh, a limit uh, on our case management uh, through the rest of the case managers? If you want to look at uh, the financial implications uh, of any of the places where you draw the line, 
before you come up with an arbitrary number. And you're welcome. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I had a, I had a couple of a couple more things I'd like to chat about. Um, I think the, the the current system we have has been largely driven by consumers and families who have extraordinary access to the people that make the decisions, being the county supervisors. And I think I think being very explicit about the 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 role that providers and consumers are going to have to continue to give voice to what kind of system we have is is essential and uh, so I we don't talk about an advisory like a regional advisory group providers consumers and, and and the governing board in this document it hasn't been recommended here I don't believe um, so that that would be an that would be work to do I don't know if that's in terms of the, the looking at this bill draft, but I and I, I guess I'm going to make an assumption that most people think that there ought to be some capacity for consumers and providers to talk to the people that govern this thing in a in in, in not such in a, in a formal way, so that they're on. The, so so I think that's important. I think the challenge to the region you know, and, and the other thing about the current system, you don't have to travel very far to talk to the people making decisions. When we have a regional system in a in a regional group of decision makers in a in a regional advisory committee, uh, that becomes a bit of a challenge. So I just throw that out. I I'm, I want to make sure we do a good job on that. Their agencies in the state have a process where they have county aging task forces and a regional advisory committee to the area agency. I'm not, I'm, and I'm not. I don't think I'm suggesting we should have county. Uh, MHID committees, although it's probably not a bad idea uh, to somehow inform a regional committee. But I think that's really important to, because I think there's a lot of people nervous about what the system's going to look like, and the system we have today is largely driven by uh, consumers, families, and providers. So I want to make sure we get that right. Um, the other question I had uh, is on page seven. It deals with the issue of legal settlement. It's. Uh, talks about definition of residency and I guess this is to the to director Palmer if you could or or Steve if you this uh, it appears that we get rid of legal settlement uh, within a region uh, but I'm not sure we get rid of legal settlement if you live in a in a different region or if you're visit from a different region. Can you talk a little bit about that, how you see that working? Are regions going to be billing other regions uh, or are we going to get rid of legal settlement from border to border or coast to coast? What you're getting rid of is durational legal settlement. That you have to live somewhere two years. What uh, hopefully you're doing is that you are placing the responsibility for who pays at the level uh, of where someone resides. Probably as this system moves forward, 75% of the people in the system are going to be covered by Medicaid. So you already, that takes care of a, a huge amount of legal settlement questions. And uh, who pays? Uh, we would hope that uh, residency would make it um, seamless uh, region to region for the consumer. 
if the question is, can a person receive a service in a region other than the one they live in, um, I, th- I think hopefully the, we don't just replace 99 counties with impermeable uh, walls times 15 or 10, <clears throat> and that uh, there would be some service across regions. And then uh, we recommend that if there's a dispute, uh, that the, there is a pros- process for dispute resolution. Again, uh, we want it to be seamless for the consumer. And if there's a difference between uh, re- two regions around the payment, uh, that there is that, that process. By nature of the high proportion of people in Medicaid, that issue will be much, much smaller than it is today. So the, the Medicaid question is whether, when we have Medicaid expansion, the numbers you suggest are, are the numbers, right? I mean, right. When it, when if, when we exp- when the Affordable Care Act covers more people under Medicaid in Iowa, you would say that seventy five percent of those people, the numbers you use just now, would be under Medicaid and wouldn't the legal settlement issue would not be an issue, okay? But it assumes we have ACA go into effect. Is that? Early assume that ACA would have to come on. It just reduces, puts more people in the Medicaid program if ACA comes on. So the problem becomes smaller. Yeah, I get that. So you, you, you and I are both assuming the ACA is going to go forward. Our, uh, our assumption built into this report shows the impact of ACA. I think we agree. I think we both hope hope like crazy it goes into effect. Um, it would have a significant impact to the good for the counties. Thank you. Uh, and, uh, uh, Director Palmer, you, 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 I know that you guys have been thinking about the technical support that counties in forming regions are going to need. Can you talk about that? What, how, how a lot of people in the room that are going to go home and try and figure this out, can you talk about what support they might see from the department to help answer questions uh, about this. So, like, when and how many people, and if you need money to do this. Uh, in uh, in the short run, uh, we would be we would have people in the department, including myself, that is available to go out across the state. Uh, I think some of the early work is just learning what a, uh, a 2080 might cover. I think we can put out some pro forma uh, kinds of materials. It isn't uh, some of this isn't already going on. I think we'd make available uh, some of the people who are <coughs> doing it now uh, and would uh, be available. Uh, if there are specific issues like legal issues, uh, we have some people uh, both that served on the committee and uh, the attorney general's office. So it really depends on what the particular issue is. Uh, we have asked for some funding. Uh, again, we show you the, the state share of that, so there's probably matchable. If uh, so, that money can grow and provide more. Uh, so I really think it's a matter of what the counties are going to want and need, uh, and I think we try to uh, we try to address that. The other thing I would uh, I've said all along is regions that are ready ready to go uh, should be meeting on a regular basis with each other and the department 
uh, so that uh, we can learn from one another and share what's working. Sure. I, I think I think one of the big questions for the committee and the legislature, you know, is commit. I mean, I think one of the big issues of regions is, uh, that we've talked about, it, is the voting structure. I mean, depending on how who has say-so and control may determine what the regions look like. So I'm not wearing a watch. Um, so I wonder if that's going to be kind of holding us up a little bit, just the, the whole governance issue uh, and trying to resolve that. Because I, as I say, I've talked to people in my area. They're like, if it's one county, one vote, we're going to have a darn small region. And so I, I, as I think about people trying to decide in January who they're going to work with without that decided, it seems to me people might lag behind in their uh, desire to, 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 to form regions uh, very quickly. That's all I have. Thank you. I am... Um, uh, Director Palmer, I want to commend you and the work groups. If you look on page 8 and talk about the eligibility services and workforce development issues, outcome measures, um, there's some significant work that the work groups and, and your department have put in this report that are pretty encouraging. Uh, looking at um, co-occurring um, and other uh, diagnosable mental illnesses in, in, a, in your process is good. The standard assessment tools um, will have an incredible kind of out, uh, uh, path toward better outcomes uh, and also a significant cost containment uh, and, and shared cost process. Uh, expanding eligibility to 150% of income is a good start. Uh, moving it to 200% by 2014 is, uh, is acknowledged. So I, I think that the uh, recommendations are here that the uh, committee is uh, is recommending to accept are, are all pretty significant. Um, I still just want to keep it open to the committee to see if they have any other comments that they want to provide. I have one comment on the eligibility services that it's more of a therapeutic conversation we need to have. Page 8, eligibility. Um I haven't had a chance to talk to Representative Smith, but in talking to the director, Representative Smith, on um, expanding the diagnostic criteria for DSM-4, exception of V codes, um, access two is not typically considered a primary diagnosis code in many cases, and we need to have a conversation about that. And so I just want to mark that this may be stated correctly, but it may not be, and we need to have providers to look at that issue more in depth to make sure that we're doing it correctly. For those in the room, sometimes personality disorders, if you use it as a primary diagnosis code, um, can actually be contraindicated to their actual behavior and improvement for themselves. The certain personality disorders will overuse the system and that just goes contraindicated to what they need for them to get better. And so we just want to make sure that we're not encouraging folks with significant personality disorders to overutilize the system. And so we may need to just look at this further. So the director just asked me to make a note in this section in the bill that we will be having further discussion about specifically what that needs to say to be representative of the of what we meant. I want to bring to the committee's attention on page 10 under financing 
we passed our first recommendation this this morning um, on financing. If you look in the middle of that page, you have five bullets. Uh, We have, in our first motion, I believe we passed bullet number two. I just want to bring to the committee's attention that the other bullets are also very significant. One is uh, the state picking up for the non um, uh, federal share of Medicaid, so that that's included in this in this it's in it's included in this motion. Yes. Um, uh, all of it. That's what the, the motion. That's what. I'm, I'm a, I don't think there was any red meat uh, in that in those sandwiches, but it sounds like everyone's acting on it. <laughs> this is yep, that's the intent. So I just wanted to go through here and make sure everyone understood what was in in our motion. I think it's good. I'm not trying to dissuade anybody from their vote, but it, it's it's important for everyone to know what what we have in here. Um, so any other dis- any other discussion, um, Senator Bolcom. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, just a question. So we've got, you know, it's largely a policy bill, and then there's some appropriation stuff in the back. Is this, are you really, is it going to be an appropriation bill? Is that what you're saying, thinking it is? It is. Okay, very good. Um, I had a question back to the, I'm really bogged down in the details, and I think the details are really where this is either going to work or it's not. And uh, back to back to the technical assistance, Chuck. You were very general with your comments. I've had questions about, uh, you know, the staffing of regions. How many people will be involved in staffing a region? I know there's been some numbers thrown out. It'll take at least five people to to staff a region. Then it's it's the questions about who's going to hire the administrator of the region. Um, assume the governing board. Um, and what are the minimum? Are there going to be a? Is there going to be a minimum re- set of requirements for somebody that's going to be a regional administrator of this? And will the department provide guidance in that regard? Uh, it seems to me that um, that if we have a dozen regions, the success of those regions is really going to revolve around the people that are running those regions, not only the governing board but the professional staff and their capacity. And so, uh, could you talk a little bit about that issue? Okay. <clears throat> the department would be glad to provide a uh, first cut at a job description for a regional director and uh, uh, administrator and spell out the competencies. I think the number of staff, in part, is going to come down to uh, what all functions a regional can take on, you can have uh, you can have some variation in that, and including taking some of those backroom administrative functions and outsourcing them, or doing them more centrally. So you wouldn't all regions don't have to 
take on all the same uh, functions to get the job done. Uh, <clears throat> I think it's pretty clear as to what the primary responsibilities of the region are. We can spell that out in uh, more detail. That would be hard to discussion on the technical assistance. I think uh, you talk about the aggressiveness of the timeline. I think uh, you can put in place a uh, 28E agreement that can be modified as over the first year. But I, I really envision the first year as really operating the status quo, moving it from a county to a regional level, not infusing a lot of new services. That's why we kind of moved it later. Uh, putting together your management plan, which is already uh, a document that uh, is, is familiar, and there are copies of that easily made available, and then doing your SWOT analysis and doing your business plan, uh, getting to know each other and kind of working out the rules of the game. So while you feel it's aggressive, uh, I feel that the first year is really learning one another, learning what you got, uh, not changing much, and then looking to how you build on it later. In, um, in uh, Senator Bochum's request, uh, whether or not this is going to be an appropriation bill, uh, Representative Schulte and I are going to ask that the uh, motion be amended um, not to include appropriations. So we keep this a uh, policy bill. I think that's the intent so that it goes to the two appropriate committees that have been working on this um, in both chambers. Do I have a, a motion to amend? Mo moved and uh, seconded by uh, the House. Um, do we need discussion on that? All in favor say aye. Aye. All opposed? Uh, back on the original motion, um, I'll ask if there are any other uh, if there are any other comments or um, if there are amendments. Representative Heddens. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Yes, I do have an amendment to propose. Um, this goes back to my questions this morning, and it does kind of reflect that on page 12, it does say that this. The roadmap does not include funding or to address the waiting list because it was beyond the scope. And I think since we do have several people on the waiting list that the state is currently responsible for uh, in funding and providing services to, I think that it should be part of this discussion of how we are going to do that and provide services. Um, so I would like to make that addition or amendment. I make a motion that uh, uh, the committee also look at the current individuals on the waiting list and develop a mechanism for providing services or including services for those individuals that we're currently responsible for. Medicaid waiting list. At the state, the state waiting list only. 
the state right, right. Well, I was looking at the, it was currently looking at the state waiting list and in particular looking at, for example, children that the state is currently responsible for, like the number of children that are on the ill and handicap waiver or the mental health waiver, yet that's not part of the discussion of redesign here. So I wanted to include that. Okay. On the issue of children, um, we're going to be talking about a second, um, a minute, in a minute, but we'll get to that. And also, we need to have a conversation on core and core plus services, which will address part of what you're talking about with waiting lists. And just for your knowledge, there's still $5 million left over for the risk pool from this year that we can start implementing toward this sooner than later. So I don't know, is it procedural to talk about the other addendums within this amendment? I'm so confused. Um, Jess Benson has a comment from LSA. And I just wanted to remind you that uh, last year in the appropriations bill, you put $5 million towards three waiting lists, and then in FY13, you have another $5 million towards all the waiting lists under Medicaid. So as, as you go along with your discussions, I just want to make sure you remember that. Okay, I think all that Representative Hedden wants is that a discussion and an expert a, a, a discussion and resolution to the Medicaid state share waiting list be addressed um, and that's all your motion does it doesn't say in which way would it be addressed but I'm assuming to eliminate Correct. the waiting list for example so would that be part of the drafted bill then? That there would be a discussion? As the amendment is presented, yes. Are there any further comments? We have an amendment to a uh, the main motion. The amendment, Representative Hedden's could you repeat the amendment? Um, yeah, this li uh, yeah, we need to look at the state waiting list that we currently have individuals on and that we need to resolve it. That's going to be part of the discussion for funding our MHDD redesign. Yeah, because it doesn't have it in there. It doesn't include that in there. I want to make sure that that is included in, our, in this whole process. All right. Um, all in favor say aye. All opposed? We're back on the main motion, which is to accept the DHS report as amended. Represent Senator uh, Bochum, then Representative Hedden. I have an amendment proposed, um, and this amendment would um, require each region to establish a regional advisory committee um, that would include three people from each county, would include providers, consumers, and, and a member of the governing board. Governing board. It, it would meet at least four times a year, and its purpose would be to advise uh, and plan and make recommendations and all, all the wonderful things that we need to do to make sure we have a good uh, delivery system. Uh, a regional advisory committee, three people from each county, 
would include providers, consumers, members of the governing board. I think it's important that members of the governing board like go to an advisory board meeting and hear from people. Um, it, that it meets at least four times a year and makes recommendations for services and funding and we work out the details on that. That's do, my motion. Do I have a second? Senator Reagan seconds it. Um, discussion. Um, I can't support this particular amendment because I think that we already have that as a stated purpose in the regional uh, governance. And I think when you go to specific recommendations, you're ham hamstringing the flexibility of the different regions and you're actually trying to make them look look like the counties look right now. And that's that wasn't the, the actual purpose of the governance. So I would be opposed to this motion. Are there any other comments? As chair, I'd just like to take liberty to, to acknowledge the support. I think it's anything we can do, at least in the early stages, to get consumers and providers um, to continue to provide their expert knowledge and experiences into the implementation of a mental health system is very important. We. We saw the results in this process in the last three months uh, where we had extraordinary um, contributions from significant people who've had exper personal experience of a family member or themselves and also as a provider. They would help us maneuver through all the landmines. I, I think in the initial sense, it's good for a region to have a strong advisory board. Just two pieces I'm concerned about with the motion uh, as stated, actually three. One is, depending upon how large a region could be, if you add a certain number of members per group per county, could be a very, very large board. And having, number two, having met with um, Bob Lincoln and his group, they've tried that before and had some really big challenges with regional groups that are that large. So I think we might, might make some sense to um, listen to what's been done before and tried before we determine... And then number three, would it be a possibility to make it a recommendation rather than an absolute um, to um, to consider her to consider Representative Miller's concerns? Would it be a possibility to put it as a recommendation that regions that we urge recommend urge the regions to consider this as an option? But and I think what Representative Miller's one of her concerns is that if we put them in an advisory capacity, then that could weaken their, their strength in the governing board itself. And I know that a lot of consumers and families were hoping to be on the governance board itself, and we don't want to relegate them to just advisory if they can have a full-fledged full, full -fledged voting seat there at the governing position. But I'm open to further discussion. Representative Head, um, Hayden? Yeah, I, 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 uh, I respect... Uh, Senator Bolcom's request here, but I, I would like to, rather than making a part of the, of the, of the what we're going to vote on today, the main piece, perhaps we should have further discussion on that, uh, and see whether we would include it rather than having a discussion to see whether or not we would remove it. I'd rather wait.
Back to uh, Senator Bochum for final um, comments on his motion. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, thank you for the comments, members. Um, I, I'm, in terms of the advisory committee, I think it's really important that we have people advise people making decisions about the system. And uh, I just I think back on the time when I was on the county board, I really relied on the consumers and the families and providers because I was doing like 20 other things. And I'd go to meetings, and I'd hear from people, and they'd tell me about the problems, and I'd try and make good decisions on their behalf. Um, and I think it's going to be more important than ever, uh, and that's, that's just in one county, and I had a lot of feedback in that one county. When we go to a region, I think it's going to be more difficult for families and consumers to have their voice heard. Uh, and so I, th- I do think it's essential that we put in place a structure uh, to do that. And with all due respect, Representative Miller, I don't find in this document uh, much discussion of any formal process uh, for consumers or family members uh, or providers to be involved. It, it, I, it, it's not on the checklist either. Um, and, and, and we haven't decided what the governing boards are going to look like yet, so we don't know if consumers are going to be on there yet or not. Okay, So I do think that, that we ought to formally place it uh, uh, as a requirement of every region. And I've been fairly prescriptive here. I would be happy to say, and I appreciate the point on having too large a group, although I know if I were trying to select three people in my county, it would be really hard to select them because I've got you know 15 or 20 people that would like to serve. So I thought more better than less because not everybody can get to every meeting. But I'd be willing to, with in terms of the amendment, uh, make an amendment to my amendment that would es- essentially just require the establishment that each region would have a regional advisory committee, and the details about that could be decided on number of members, how often they meet. Uh, obviously, their role would be to advise the governing board. But that we ought to be clear that uh, there's a place, a, a formal place, not an informal place for or input um, from consumers and family members. So I would make an, a new motion. Well, I'll withdraw that motion. Just make this motion. Well, you, if, if you have a second, accept that um, I, as a friendly you? amendment, then I think we'll go on. Thank, uh, thank you, Senator Reagan. the uh, new motion, and that is to uh, have a... Each region would have a, a regional... Each region would have, a, would have an advisory committee. And providers, including providers, consumers, and governing board and members advocates. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. That's my motion. So that's his, it's his motion. Um, it was on closing remarks, so all in favor say aye. Opposed? Terrific. All right. Are there any other motions to be made? Okay, I have a one a, one amendment related to the children's group. Um, the children's group, as you all are aware, were a, was a two-year group, and so we have year two. And so what we what I spoke to Director Palmer about would be what would we like year two to look like, and we want to give them a specific charge. And the specific charge for the children's group in year two is, the quote says, put together an integrated system. But to create an integrative system for services, for including child welfare, juvenile justice, children's mental health, education, health homes, 
in early childhood Iowa. So we may need to make changes to that committee structure in order to have all of those people at the table in order to make an integrated system for children as the charge for year two. Is there a second? I thought Republicans didn't like bigger government. That's good. Oh, it's integrated government, okay. Are there, um, is there, is there any discussion? Anybody have any comments on the motion? That's a pretty big one, okay. Um, we will include, okay, all in favor say aye. Opposed? Yeah, one more motion. And this one's going to require discussion on the part of our group. Um, the, the brain injury work group, as you know, put a lot of time and energy into all of their recommendations. And the department's recommendation on this is, very, is a small recommendation as a place to start. So we need to look at the specific recommendation that's in your report. And then also the brain injury work group. It's unclear, and I guess any clarification from the director, if it's a two-year group or a one-year group. And if it's a two-year group, we need to set a charge for the second year. And could you clarify that for us, director? My understanding was that you actually gave them more time uh, to get their report in. They wanted to get their report in at the same time as everybody else. Uh, so they move more quickly than uh, the time that you gave them. But you did not set up a two-year process. So the only the only group that we needed to the second year on was children's. That's correct. Now you may want to go further on uh, on the judicial work group because there may be more to be done there, but uh, that's not required. Great. Okay, so we need to have discussion on the brain injury work group if the well there is hold on one second. There's apparently in the financing plan currently. Yeah, where the DHS proposal is. about two-thirds of the way down on the page, page 14. Okay, so the, the BI group did not know that they did not have a two, second year. So they did not prioritize their list for us, which is why we have the list that you saw in anybody that had your worksheet, where we all had lots of discussion questions. So they are requesting an additional meeting so that they can prioritize their list for where we start here, which is just, there's nothing in the narrative on brain injury except the piece in the budget. So that's the place where the department would start, but then we want to have the brain injury group to, to meet again to bring us a 
the rest of their proposal as long as with their priority listings. With that, that's my motion. If that's all right with you. So to restate the motion. We're going to have a, uh, Representative Schulte has withdrawn her amendment, and we're going to have a general discussion, and most of the discussion will emulate from the worksheet that we have, page 9. None of the issues of brain injury were in the final report, but the work group spent time on it, and if, it's, if the committee wants to have a discussion, we look at page 9. Senator Bochum. Thank, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, um, this morning the budget that was presented to us has some, some expenditures for increasing the availability of post-acute neo-rehabilitation for BI. I wonder, if, I wonder if Rick could speak to that. I mean, if we're looking at some sort of service increase they've budgeted for it, what exactly it, it is the services, what exactly are the services, and we're not including any of that policy language in this in this uh, motion apparently just a quick comment I've got to step out and make my budget presentation to the governor uh, so if you don't mind Rick can cover uh, I think what I'm not here um, <clears throat> again uh, I think your intent with the brain injury group was to begin to get a sense of, of the field if you will of what are the different services uh, what would be some of the costs associated with it so uh, what was kind of state-of-the-art, I, I would support their having an additional meeting uh, to flush some of that out for you. And we chose mm, the strategy of bringing some people back from out of state. Uh, we have a couple of successful programs that are doing that, and that's why we made the, uh, the recommendation that that would be the service that we would start with. Thank you. So, sorry. Um, so it's basically trying to pr provide services people already getting them, but do got it. Yes, but n any new capacity to provide services to people that aren't getting them. Okay. Okay. Get that. 
it sounds like we're paying more out of state, and there's a thought that we'd get them back in the state at lesser cost. Is that? But I'm just I, I, my expectation is there's a lot of people that with brain injuries that aren't getting much of anything today, and there seems to be some expectation that we're improving the system for those folks, and that seems like it's down the road. Chuck, get us some money. I think that's that was the intent of Representative Schulte's inquiry, and if I could just extend that thought the issue is if we as a committee go to this sheet that we had that John distributed which were recommendations from the work group um, none of the brain injury recommendations found its way into the department's recommendation so if the committee wants to do anything on brain injury you can go to this sheet and make your motion I think it's appropriate for us to do that Yes, so that was my work group, and um, as you notice, all the first eight recommendations are current practice. That's currently what we're doing. The next um, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, and fourteen would be new or expanded services, and of those that truly had some value it was the fact that these people spend long times on multiple lists waiting for some kind of a waiver and you may find their name on more than one list in fact you probably will and so we actually they actually came up with a really I thought some really good suggestions about how to um, make sure that they were put on one list, and that list was where they came off of as fast as possible, and that we were we funded the uh, the waiver. So, I think at the bare minimum, we've got to go with those first eight recommendations, and then we need to priori- We need to have that group prioritize nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, and fourteen. That would be my recommendation. I move. I move that we accept the first eight as current practice and we have the brain injury work group prioritize uh, in another meeting 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. Okay, is there a second to that motion? Second. Um, Representative Miller, what about the remaining? Then you have expanded expanded core services and new core services. Would you like the group to also prioritize those. Uh, I'm so, I will um, include the motion to take um, 15 through 21 and the new core services 22 through 35. Okay, and 22 apparently uh, is already in the... Uh, list their priorities, uh, that we list their priorities. Okay. Number the 22 legis- is already in the report apparently. It's a standardized VI screening tool, so... That's what I was told. Okay. Right. So. Well, even if it gets in there, it's not. It, that that was the least of the recommendations. No so uh, the motion is to accept uh, recommendations one through eight, and then ask the BI work group to prioritize um, in the three areas: um, 
optimized core services, expanded core services, and new core services uh, back to the committee um, and for DHS to cost them out. And, right. Um, Senator Bochum, nobody's good. Strip, no. Okay, all those in favor say aye. Opposed? Okay. Now, uh, there was a question about the judicial workshop, whether or not the recommendations that are in that came from theirs, whether or not we want to make a motion to uh, uh, instruct LSA to work that into a draft legislation separate from the, uh, uh, the one that is in the report. Representative Smith. Um, I know that Representative Garrett, who's here today, attended all of the meetings uh, of this work group, and I talked with him briefly last time uh, and also with Representative Wolf about doing that. So I would make the motion that we take the judicial uh, recommendations and work on those in separate legislation. Moved by the House, second by the Senate. All in favor say aye. Aye. Opposed? Before we go to uh, representatives, I'd like to just have the committee look on page 13 of the worksheet. It's Children's Disability Workshop. Uh, and I would like to know just whether or not the motion we, we passed earlier uh, included uh, these recommendations as well. I believe it was Representative Miller and Representative Smith. Uh, motion. So So we Yep, is that it? Okay, so that uh, that's the the workshop that uh, LSA will look at to include in the, in, the, in the major bill. All right. Uh, it's on page uh, 13. 13 Children's Disability Workshop. One, two, three, four, the next page. All of those. And the consensus from the motion maker, uh, Representative Schulte, was that that was included in her motion. Is that a clarification that uh, the chairs have designated as being um, part of the original motion? Senator Bochum. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, does that include uh, cost estimates also? I mean, every one of the I – mean, that's, that's all really, – Yes. looks like really expensive stuff. Does that include – like the – I mean, I think we just passed a, a laundry list of things we should be doing under BI, but we all know we don't really have the money to do them all, and we're getting cost estimates on those. Is that the same for this or not? Absolutely. I mean, it's always, it's, of course it is. We're going to use cost so, estimate on everything. So we're passing. So what we're what, what we're passing is uh, telling the department to do cost estimates. Is that what we're doing with this? And if it's not understood, the legislative service agency will collect those. Yeah. Yeah. Just just so we. 
as people read this, there's some expectation maybe that we're trying to do more than we're really going to be able to do. I just want to be, I want to be clear what we're doing here is just making a recommendation on giving us some feedback on if we do these things, here's what they cost. And maybe, maybe we need to have another discussion or me to say for the numerous time that this is going to all be in draft legislation. There's no sense of law behind it, but I believe that it's to our benefit to put together a comprehensive system, cost it out, put it in multi-year fra- uh, uh, time frames, and be realistic under, and I don't think anybody has to say that this legislature and this administration has the budget clearly um, as their number one priority. So we're not sneaking anything in front of anybody. Uh, this is all going to be, has to be discussed, but as they say in the lottery, if you don't pay, you don't play, and you can't win. So if we don't identify it uh, as a service and we don't determine the core cost of it, then we have no idea if we could actually afford it. So this is, this is kind of a, a Christmas tree uh, approach toward redesign, but I think it's realistic that we identify the best services and then decide how we're going to finance it um, so the people of the state know that we've had a clear and thorough discussion of the services. On the very back page, page 14 at the bottom, um, a new work group was added to our list that was the, the PMIC group, and they made a fairly substantial recommendation that... I don't even know the cost for this, and so I'm not sure that was not included in my motion earlier, so I don't know which one to do with it because I don't know what to do with it. So just making a comment that PMIC section, page 14, is not included in the original motion. A motion on the floor, so we have a request to speak. I make that motion that we, I mean, we're looking at costs for several items here. Why not include this and look at this as well? So I move that we include it. Is there a second? Second. Representative Schulting. Okay, move it. All in favor say aye. Aye. Opposed? Very agreeable group today. Let's remember this in January. Representative Eaton. Um, I'd like to uh, add some language to this bill that would ask the department to uh, come up with a better, more equitable plan on how they administer the waiting list. Right now, if you are out of state, or perhaps if we regionalize, you might be out of the region. Um, At the end of the fiscal year, if you come back and re-enter, you go to the bottom of the list. And you might wait another two or three years to get off the list. So I think we need to find a better way. Ask the department to come up with a better way. 
as they address the eligibility of those individuals that are on the waiting list. Well, um, thank you. I'd like to ask Representative Edens if that was, if she considers that part of her motion on the waiting list. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, I meant it to include that as well. I was actually looking at the state one. I think Representative Heaton is looking at the individuals that were on some of the county waiting lists. So I think as you're looking at all the waiting lists, that could be included there. I'm exhausted. Are there any other uh, any other uh, amendments to um, to consider in front of the committee, Representative Hedens? Thank you, Mr. Chair. Okay, we're just I'm not clear now. So the motion to change the MR language to intellectual disability. Did I need to do that as a separate amended amendment afterwards, or because we've already done? I, we weren't quite sure from the conversation earlier, so we just wanted to make sure of that. Okay, and then I just have one additional. I'm not sure if I need an amendment or just a clarifying question, but we've, when we've talked about the financing, this is probably to the department, and some of the recommendations are looking at the state taking that um, uh, non-Medicaid portion from the, from the counties. Do we know, then, if there is enough money left over for the counties to provide that non uh, provi to provide services to the non-Medicaid individuals. I know the report, I think it's on page oh, 13 or somewhere in here, so the department would look at that. I'm assuming you would do it in consultation with the counties as to what those services would be. It just kind of just references just the department. It doesn't say in conjunction with the counties. And I don't have any idea right at the moment if they're current, if we took that over, if they would still have waiting lists or not. Do you have any of that current data? Because this may cause me to have an amendment. So I'm just wondering that. See, see if, I, if I understand what you're asking is. Uh, the, your question is, is there an uh, have uh, what I think is in effect $134 million in the county system if that would uh, be sufficient to provide core services without a waiting list. Is that? I, I think that the challenge there is it would probably depend on which county you're talking about and how the funds are distributed. Uh, that's really the bottom line, bottom line to that. Okay, then, Mr. Chair, um, I guess I would like my our amendment to be that I'm trying to look where it is in the paper here. It, um, sorry, we do reference. Yep, on page 12, it references the department should review and recommend what sufficient funding level for non-Medicaid services to non-Medicaid eligible person should be. I guess I'd like that should be the department. Um, in collaboration with the counties and consumers, I guess, as to what that would, what would be sufficient funding level and what those services should be. Are you still talking about waiting lists? Well, no, I'm talking about the, I'm, this is separate now, I'm sorry. I'm talking about for that non-Medicaid 
report this is on page twelve it references the department has three other recommendations regarding financing and so they're just saying the department should review and recommend what is sufficient funding for non medicaid services and services to non medicaid individuals should be i am suggesting that that counties be a part of that discussion counties and consumers be a part of who should be reviewing that recommendation and you could add providers to that as well it's been moved and second are there any discussions Yeah. Um, well, as long as it's a recommendation, um, I don't have a problem with that. I don't think. I just think sometimes when we, I always appreciate the the, the consumer uh, and having a having an opportunity for input. But I think uh, as a as a governmental entity and a provider of services, we cannot hand a checkbook to the consumer. We have to make a decision as to what we can afford and what we can't. And I, I, we, we, we will open the door here. And, and if it's a recommendation, if it's a recommendation that we then have to make a final decision on, I can handle that. But uh, I think we we need to be very cautious, or we might find it difficult to um, deal with it. I, I just wanted to add, and I appreciate what Representative Heaton um, just said, but I do think if we're talking about progress and moving forward with, for people with disabilities, that they need to have a voice at the table as well. And uh, it's not necessarily that we're going to may not do hugely expansive services. It may be, I, I just think they should have that voice at the table to say the current services that are being provided to them, would that stay at that level or should there be some additional ones? We just want their voice there as well. Senator Hiddens, is that that they is this the regional advisory committee that they're going to interact with, or is this before this all starts? I'm just I a think little confused. Before it all starts, like I said, I just I read it off on page twelve, and that's where I I'm going after. Where it's just saying the department's making those those determinations in regards to that sufficient funding level for those non Medicaid services. I think there just needs to be more individuals involved as well. Could uh, is a request to restate the motion? Uh, My motion was is, was that the department, in consultation with the counties, uh, I had actually said the counties, providers, and consumers, uh, uh, review and make that recommendation for that funding level for those non-medicated non-medicaid services and services to non-Medicaid-eligible individuals of what they should be. 
because it's two, di- it's two different things. It reference, references the funding and it references the services. And we're saying that the department should make that total decision. I'm saying that the county should be a part of that as well as the provider and consumers. Okay. I think it's clear on what you want. Are there any other questions? Senator Bocum. Ms. Chair, just to clarify, so th- these these sections around here uh, appear to go into effect once the regions are formed. I'm, I'm wondering, because it, it refers to safe funds used for department contracts with regions should do these things. Regions should be directed to use new money, state funding, blah, blah, blah. So where do the, the counties are kind of now the regions, right? I mean, so... Shouldn't, shouldn't they be talking to the re, uh, shouldn't they be talking to the new official entity the state to the new official entity and I guess I'd just restate Senator Reagan's point if we establish regional advisory committees with consumers governing board people who are county people and providers is that the group we want to consult with the people that are running the new system as opposed to I'm just wondering yeah I think is the section that we're talking about is recommendations for estimating the costs, identifying the costs. And uh, the department supposedly giving us recommendations on financing of the regions. So I'm not sure we're not down in the weeds by now. Any other questions? We're ready for a vote on the motion. All in favor say aye. Oppose. Senator Bochum recommended that we get uh, get get a weed whacker and start looking at the cutting out some of these issues. Um, I'm open for any other recommendation. No, you can't. You're out, you're out of order, Senator Boko. Go ahead, sir. Uh, it's a question to the drafters. Do they have any questions of us, given all this succinct? Yeah. You, you also said adult uh, daycare to change that terminology as well. So I just wanted to remind you, so I'm assuming you'll, you'll still want those both together. Um, and you also said just a little bit ago to not include uh, an appropriation. So there'll have to be something that addresses that financing. There's, there's several pages of financing and actually a lot of financing questions, but they're not going to get addressed except in conceptual form. There won't be an appropriation then in this bill. I, I think with those two clarifications, then um, it does help on how to do the drafting on that. Uh, we are about a half an hour ahead of schedule, and i like to uh, go toward public comment. Um, so if uh, we'll entertain, uh, if there are... Are any comments from the public to address the committee? Now is your time to uh, step forward. You could use the mic uh, 
where Rick is is uh, presently sitting and presently vacating. And then after public comment, we will have another round of um, of comments by committee members, and then uh, a closing comment on again the process. So. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, thank you for allowing us to speak today. My name is Bob Glass. I am from Des Moines, and I'm speaking on behalf of the Amos Mental Health and Addictions Issue Team. Amos is an organization of 28 uh, churches in the, in the Polk County and Ames area, as well as NAMI Greater Des Moines. What we'd like to, to address is not so much the issues that you specifically addressed today in management and finance, but rather of a general comment, considering that this is probably your last public meeting before the LSA begins its work and the legislature convenes next month. So our subject here is mental health and the disability services redesign. We in the Amos Mental Health and Addictions Issue Team want the Interim Study Committee to know that we strongly support the recommendations of the Iowa Mental Health Planning Council as approved November 16, 2011. We wish to stress that adequate funding, the integration of primary care, mental health, and addiction services, and an immediate focus on workforce issues and treatment are essential to the redesign. We urge that the committee not overlook the importance of items listed under missing pieces in that report. Additionally, we wish to complement the efforts of the work groups and we support their recommendations and the priorities they establish for the redesign. We are encouraged by the widespread recognition of the issues and the steps needed to correct the deficiencies. As you have also have recognized, redesign of the mental health system in Iowa is long overdue, and we depend on you to make serious strides toward making this system, a state system, worthy of the pride we take in our government. With, and parenthetically, I might add that uh, based on what I've seen today, it's, there's no question about how seriously you take this, this task. We recognize that the task is not easy, nor will it be achieved overnight. We also hope that you will take comfort knowing that you have the support of stakeholders in the system, from consumers and member, family members to providers. We believe that everyone in our state is touched in some way by the health issues that have been the focus of the work groups and the prospective legislation. Our member organizations place paramount importance on equity and compassion 
in our systems of care, and we look to you to create legislation that will reflect the values that we all share. Again, we want you to know that you have our support in this monumental task, and I thank you. We have a number of, as might add, we had a number of our, our members representatives here this morning anticipating that that would be our opportunity to speak, and we have a few of them there this afternoon. So I thank those of you who have come today, too. Good afternoon. My name is Mayim uh, from the Office of Consumer Affairs and the Iowa Advocates. I'd like to thank you all for the hard work you're doing on this process. Representative Heedens had mentioned with the involvement of consumers and providers with the uh, recommendations for sufficient funding levels for services, and I'd like to throw in family members into the mix, too. The reason I say this is part of the recommendations we see before us are for peer, peer support services and peer-run self-help centers. So if we're going to truly have a system that moves forward with effective services, we have to include these key constituents, especially in relation to these services, which I think are going to be very important in our system going forward, especially if we look at a system that's based on Olmstead principles. So thank you very much. Um, I'm Jesse Perry with Hillcrest Family Services and the Iowa Advocates for Mental Health Recovery. Closer. I'm Jesse Perry with the Iowa Advocates for Mental Health Recovery and the Iowa Peer Support Training Academy. And I just wanted uh, to say that I've heard some very good things happening today, but I do want to just remind everybody uh, as we go through this to be mindful of the language that we use in redesigning this system. Um, for some of the language, such as chronic, persistent, severe, is very uh, hopeless to people in recovery and to family members. So I'd just really like to encourage you all to look at that and the effects of that language when you're redesigning the system. Hi, I'm Lisa Robin Sanford, and I am um, a survivor and someone who is also working with the Office of Consumer Affairs, NAMI Amos, and Iowa Advocates for Mental Health Recovery. Very quickly, I just wanted to say that just only um, approximately four years ago, I was literally laying in a corner, sucking on my thumb, wondering what I could do to get over the mental illnesses that I was Go, um, experiencing. They were very severe. And for the first time in my life, since 2007, I was placed on a brain injury waiver and uh, the whole community um, rallied around me. And I just want you guys to know that I have now exited out of the brain injury waiver and have just graduated from DMAC. And that's what we can do when we work together and support those who are experiencing illnesses, we do recover, and I just wanted to show
show you that I'm living proof. Thank you. I'm uh, Mary Chavez, consumer and family member. Um, and I also was on the regional work group. Uh, one of the questions that I have is that I heard uh, I'm not exactly sure if I heard <laughs> one of the things that I heard is that Senator Bolcom is it? I believe that you brought up whether consumers and family members should be on the board and that you're not sure whether the consumer and family members should be on the governance board. And um, I guess I, as an advocate for mental health, mental, people with mental illness um, and a family member and a consumer myself, um, I think it's in, very important that we have a voice on the government. Um, kind of implementation of, of uh, the regionalization. I'm just wondering if there's regions that already are getting together and already implementing this regionalization in January 2012. They would have a governance board already set up. And on that board, they are already looking at this time for, for consumers and family members to be on that governance board. And so I guess I'm wondering, are you assuming or asking us to wait to form those governance boards? Are you asking the regions to wait until it's voted on in the Senate, in the House? Or is this something that um, can be um, pushed forward and that if people, if the regions are already deciding the consumers and family members that are going to be on that governance board, are they going to be asked to step down from the governance board if they're already on there once the Senate makes the decision, if that makes any sense at all. <clears throat> ask that you would please consider that um, peers and family members, you know, consumers and family members um, would like to have a vote and, um, on the governance board, and so please consider that. For allowing me to come up. My name is Todd Nowak. I'm with the Office of Consumer Affairs, one of the regional coordinators. Um, I wear many hats. I'm a member of the Iowa Advocates for Mental Health and Recovery Board. I'm on the Peer Support Training Academy Advisory Committee. Um, just a lot of advocacy work. There's one thing in the report that came out that uh, kind of caught my eye as others. And I don't want to try to repeat myself with what Jesse Perry said, but uh, on the fifth box on the last page on action step, it says peer support. Increase the use of peer support as a widely available service for persons with a severe and persistent mental illness or an intellectual disability statewide. To me, that, that seems like a crisis. 
and and for my own judgment, um, maybe some wording like available service for persons in recovery from a mental illness, uh, because I, I don't think it's a thing of severe and persistence. Uh, I think it's uh, maybe need to back up and understand that, uh, you know, Jim just getting off his third shift job and, you know, somebody passed away in his family, he might need to go to like a peer-run center and talk to a peer. So, you know, he might not have any severe or persistent, persuasive, excuse me, persistent disability. Um, and I say this because I'm a consumer myself, which I really like to consider myself a person with lived experience. And then there was a part on page page 10 that uh, I, I just, again, this is wording, if... The depart- it says the department recommends the following improved workforce practices. Uh, the one second bullet there, increase and improve peer service training, including super- supporting the Peer Support Academy that provides leadership training for peers who provide consumer services. Uh, if you folks are referring to the Iowa Peer Support Training Academy, I just think that uh, a lot of folks, and, and I have several people that I know right now, that really want to get the Peer Support Training Academy up and going so they can attend, I I think maybe just adding them words, the Iowa Peer Support Training Academy. And I thank you for allowing me to come up. Hello, my name is Braden Daniels, and uh, I also work for the Office of Consumer Affairs, and I work Region 1, which is the western end of the state. I cover 30 counties, which is a big responsibility. Uh, I also have gone through the Iowa Peer Support Training Academy and a graduate of 2010. I'm proud to have done that. I have been had the opportunity to work with many people uh, who struggle with their mental illness. One of the things that I've uh, heard that has pleased me is that... Uh, it has been recommended that there be more money allocated for peer support, and I think that is great. I think it's very important that we recognize the importance of peer support and its contribution to the system. I think that that's wonderful, but I think one of the things that concerns me is that there's a need there to figure out a better way to allocate the funding that comes through the DHS. Uh, I notice that we are one of the few states that allocates money the way it does. I know that there's some extra monies coming through, and I think that's important. But how we allocate that money for peer support is going to be very, very important. I think we need to decide how we're going to do that. Uh, The the way that it is currently divvied out uh, causes a problem because uh, I believe the way that it works now is that per consumer, it's divvied out through $150 per consumer per month. I think that it would be better to consider the idea, which some states have done, is take into consideration the idea that there's, there's a system of depending on need and, the, uh, and, and uh, determining uh, the, level of, the, the, the level of need based on where the person is at. 
there are some people that are at a, that are at a level one need, some people that are level two need, a level three need. And based on that, there's a different level of care, basically like community services works. And so somebody might have have more needs than another person, and we won't be able to, as peer support tra- uh, trained people, be able to meet the needs of those people that are in that are in need of deeper care if we have the same money allocated as someone else who doesn't have as many needs if we don't uh, have a system that provides for the funding that's necessary for those people with higher needs. Does that make sense? So I think that we need to try to figure out a way to allocate those funds so that we are able to take care of those people that have a greater need. I just thought that I'd put that out there to, to consider. County Supervisor, and I don't particularly today, although I think um, many feel the way that I do. Um, issue need. But it, the basic goals of a redesign, I feel, include reducing the costs of delivery of services, uh, increase the quality and quantity of those services available, and enhancing access to the services. And it really does not seem that regionalization in and of itself aids in, the, in, in solving in reaching those goals. Um, and especially when you look at the more rural areas, regionalization becomes even more problematic. Hi, I'm Rhonda Schaus, the Office of Humor Affairs. Um, Wanted to thank everyone for. Uh, I also, a mental health planning council. I'm also a health recovery. I'm a consumer and I'm also a family member and was on the children's work group. I have been involved with this process pretty much from the beginning, having been on a work group, and I have been extremely pleased with DHS, with the interim committee on how involved you have allowed consumers and family members to be. Um, As the process moves forward, I would really encourage you to encourage your counterparts in the full legislature to continue this and have us involved as much as possible. Um, I would particularly like to point out uh, with Representative Heddens that I appreciate you bringing in the waiting list. Um, As a parent who has spent many moons on the waiting list, um, I really appreciate that you're thinking of those people as well. Thank you.
I'm Dion Williams, um, the director of Systems Unlimited, which is a community provider in eastern Iowa. First of all, I'd like to thank you guys all for your hard work throughout the last six months or more. It's been incredible to watch. I'm very positive and optimistic about the process and the outlook for positive success. There's a lot of devils in the details, but I'm really impressed with how you guys are approaching this system. I do have a concern regarding um, county board, county supervisors as a governance board. Um, basically, many counties are direct care service providers, and one of your recommendations is that direct care service providers can't be on the governing board. So that means that leaves those counties in quite a bit of trouble trying to figure that out. Um, and I work with 39 different counties, and to be frank, some counties don't have any supervisors that really are knowledgeable about MHDS services. And that causes some consternation with some of the other counties. My recommendation is that instead you follow a general election for the board, uh, the governance board, following a school district model. Um, you've got that in place where it's a general election for people who are knowledgeable and who care about it. It's a very, in, very cheap kind of election to run compared to some of yours. Um, the, uh, sorry, it's expensive to run, for, and you guys know it. Um, the, um, s some of the uh, advantages for that, um, if they have the oversight and the ta regional taxing authority, the same way a school district does, whether that's a community college or a general district, it solves the accountability issue because of general elections. It solves non-conflict because they're not necessarily a direct, they won't be a direct service provider. It allows knowledgeable um, individuals who and advocates to run for that position um, rather than just putting somebody in just because they're already a supervisor. Um, and it doesn't limit the expertise simply to those in currently in government that have that expertise. And it allows single-issue candidates to be on that board of a single-issue um, board. Thank you. I'm Deb Wilson-Nurness from Fort Dodge. A little closer. Deb Wilson-Nurness from Fort Dodge. I'm currently a peer supporter at the Friendship Center, which is one of the three favorite jobs I've had. Um, when people talk about to you about uh, expanding peer support, I would like you to be sure to give us living wages. But that's not why I came up here. Um, I have a ribbon at home, and many of you may have it too. It's a green ribbon with gold writing that says, Children's Mental Health Matters. I worked in Chicago for 35 years with children and their families, and 12 and a half years of that with was infant mental health. So I'd like to ask you to please be sure to consider services to infants and their families, as well as um, children in preschool. A, a lot happens before preschool, a lot emotionally, too. And um, it 
can make things less expensive in the long run to catch it as early as possible. Now, I, I also believe there's a genetic component to most of this, so, um, you know, take care of that too. But uh, infants with diagnosable mental illness, and it's Stanley Greenspan in, uh, oh, I forget what county, I mean, what city now, and what college he's with. But uh, he has a training program that I would like to see more people from Iowa go to. Um, and I also have found more stigma generally. Anyway, my lived experience. I'm a mental health professional, and now something between paraprofessional and professional. I'm not sure where we put peers. Support, but I think that it's one of the most valuable things that has happened, and moves us more readily toward recovery, which is an essential word that I didn't hear a lot of today. Uh, Stigma in in Iowa is, well, it's just here more than I'm used to. One of the places that it showed up was that I worked as a counselor in Illinois, a, a licensed professional counselor. And when I came here, I was told that doesn't work well, and that's not often not true in Chicago. A lot of people with mental illness were also providers. And I have one more thing to say. Persons without Medicaid, persons who have income such that they have, maybe they have a job with some insurance, still costs, unless you get it parity with it, um, cost me about $300,000 for the first part of my married life. And it also helped cost uh, that marriage because, uh, you know, you get tired of spending the money that you earn sometimes on somebody else for that amount. Um, So anyway, I guess that's about it. Good afternoon. I want to thank you all. My name is Steve Siegel. I'm on the Wapalo County Board of Supervisors. I do want to thank you all for your hard work on this, and we all know that the uh, mental health system in Iowa needs some improvement. However, got a couple questions here. I, I notice your financing 
uh, counts on $22, $23 million a year from the Affordable Care Act. And I know a number of you want to see that overturned. So how are you going to make up that money if that happens? Secondly, this property tax and equity issue, the sheet that the uh, Legislative Service Agency folks had. I'm from Wapolo County. Like I said, uh, we pay $68 a head. Uh, a lot of you counties are $20, $30 a head. We've got serious property tax and equities, which have been there all along. But at least the money we kept in our own county. If we go to regions, we're going to end up, Wapolo County taxpayers are going to end up paying for other peop- other counties' clients. That's not fair. We're one of the poorer counties in the state anyway. So there's a lot of inequities. And if you look at this list of the counties that are on the plus side currently, I think you'll find virtually all the waiting list counties on it, largely because, as Senator Bolcom pointed out, a lot of counties have grown in population over the last 15 years and are still frozen at their 1995 level. Some of us have stayed the same. Some have declined, and that really needs to be altered. The regions, and I I echo the gentleman that spoke earlier, the supervisor, you won't find too many supervisors who think this is a good idea. It's going to produce, it's going to make it difficult to provide equitable services to the rural counties. I think they're going to be the big losers. It's going to create chaos when what we really need is stability and more money. The system needs more money. That's what it mostly needs. It's not going to be a plus for most of us. And uh, I, I don't believe that the state can do this for lower administrative costs than the counties. Most of the counties are running 2 and 3% of their administrative costs. You're talking about 5 as a floor. So we've got a lot of questions and concerns. Do appreciate the efforts on studying the additional services. We need them, but show me the money. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. Caregivers Association, I want to, uh, first of all, thank the work groups, thank all of you for your attention authority that this reports to the state of Iowa. The one thing I want to just... Um, in the past month, four meetings of four different groups... And they're all talking about the needs to focus on work. Active was the uh, workforce at length uh, needing people with Alzheimer's in the state of Iowa. That's one group. The second group was the. For several years, it's focused on building and improving the direct care. I attended a meeting of the Health and Long-Term Advisory, which is addressing the, the depth 
health and long-term care workforce in Iowa. And now the mental health redesign is focused on the same thing. And I applaud all those groups. This is not a criticism in any way, shape, or form. It's all groups have to recognize that the fundamental here is to build the workforce in the state of Iowa in terms of a variety of health and long-term care needs. My only observation is that, that we've got a lot of groups and we've got a lot of people all focused. I think there's just a process question here that the legislature has got to address. Continue to have individual groups addressing individual niches of the workforce, or is it better to have a more comprehensive look, a more comprehensive review of and integrated approach on building the health and long-term care workforce. So I simply throw that out as a suggestion or an observation. Again, I greatly appreciate the fact that this particular redesign has, has focused on workforce as a fundamental, as have a lot of other groups. So I encourage the legislature to think about that process question, answer it from whatever your perspective would be to take. So thank you very much. Are there any other comments? Okay, thank you. Um, we'll go back to the committee. We have um, one last motion to make, which is to uh, make the, the motion to accept recommendations of the county and of the, of the department as amended. As moved and seconded. Um, any questions? Seeing none, all in favor say aye. Opposed? Terrific. Um, okay, so where does that leave us? Uh, first, um, it um, I think, again, recognition to the department, to the work groups uh, for their hard work. Uh, and unfortunately, it does not end for you. Um, we will have a bill drafted based on the recommendations passed today. The, depart the LSA will draft that. We're expecting it sometime in January. Um, I think realistically we're talking about the third week. Uh, staff members of the committee will see it first. Uh, we will then be able to um, use that document and uh, improve it, uh, bring in the details. Uh, we are going to be asking, Representative Schulte and I will be asking our leaders uh, to form a joint House Senate committee. Um, that committee can convene at any time uh, this session uh, begins. We don't need the report. Uh, this clearly information uh, that the department is going to be working on, especially on financing. We want to get involved uh, the other members of the uh, legislature uh, that are not on our committee that have um, uh, an interest either uh, personally or by legislative appointment to uh, tax issues and financing of uh, human services programs. Uh, we, uh, I think we feel, and, I, and I'll pass this on to, Sen to Representative Schulte, um, but that the committee has, uh, has done um, as part of an extraordinary process. Uh, we as legislators are at the end of it, 
uh, we will see this bill and add recommendations and amend the, uh, the draft legislation. I would hope that anybody in the audience, any interest, interested party, uh, would continue to contact us. Uh, feel free to email um, either myself or Representative Schulte, get in touch with our staff, uh, talk to LSA. Uh, we will uh, continue to have open meetings. Uh, I, can, I can tell you from the chatter in, in the Capitol that um, all four caucuses are looking toward uh, this legislation and this um, proposal uh, to being a um, uh, being well received by the members of the legislature and the governor. I want to also recommend and, and thank um, Chuck Palmer and his whole staff uh, in the type of work that they've provided us, the openness, the trans, um, transparency. Um, I want to thank Steve Day and his staff uh, for staying with us and, and actually doing more than what he was contracted to do. Um, but he's not an accountant, so that's why he's staying with us. His accountant is asking that question, though, but he's, yes. But we are very uh, appreciative of the time you have put in this, and, and so have your staff. And um, I will then now conclude by uh, giving this on uh, to uh, Representative Schulte, and then after our comments, um, uh, open up to anybody on the uh, committee. Thank you. I just want to say thank you for today. I had no idea what to expect when I got up this morning, and that went much better than I was anticipating, so I'm a happy girl. I um, want to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year and every other holiday you might be celebrating at this time of year. And I just want to say thanks again, and don't forget to eat your cookies on your way out because we got them just for you. And I'll open it up to our to our group for questions or comments for a final discussion, anyone. All right, well, we'll be setting... When, when the bill becomes drafted, for those that don't remember, it becomes a study bill. And if you were part of the journey last session, we started 7.30 a.m. meetings a couple of times a week. We hope not to repeat that. But there will be regular meetings that we hope to, to as a, the bill moves forward through the chambers, that will be public meetings that we will take into consideration, figuring out a way to make them public. And if we can broadcast, we will do so. And so just stay in touch, and it will continue to be updated on the, middle, on the DHS website for everyone. And we wish you a very Merry Christmas, and you are dismissed. <laughs>